Okay. And um, just like it's all good, like as far as I don't want it to be an interview. I want you to just, you know, I'd love, I love that email that you sent me where you were like, yeah, let's just free ball it a little bit, you know? Yeah. So the questions are just kind of guides. Sure. So, so I guess the first thing is, man, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, Like we were talking about before, um, before we pressed record is uh, I just kind of want this to be a uh, kind of like an educational thing for people. You know, I want, whether they're new hunters or um, I even thought about this. I mean, people who don't like hunting as well for them to maybe understand uh, where hunters are coming from. Uh, We talked, you're a hunter. I'm a hunter as well. I'm a novice. Um, You know, my quick history is I've been hunting probably for about like five years, maybe five, six, seven years. Those first two years, I think were just terrible and then, you know, after two years, I'm buying guns, I'm buying camo, I'm buying all kinds of crazy stuff. And then, then I calm down. And now I feel like I'm really getting into like, okay, I'm really getting into the love of hunting. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kind of want to do this because I feel like there's a little bit, even though there's a ton of podcasts out there, I feel like there's a gap there for myself anyway in um, education, mm-hmm. like Again, before the we should probably should have press recorded uh, like a long time ago, but we even talked about before, uh, like uh, you know some of the fake kind of famous hunting podcasts out there, and they get into a lot of education, but it's more there's a spackling of education now and more I don't say BS, but more of like just people talking about their families and which is great. I mean that's what podcasts are supposed to be and about the culture too. But I feel like um, I'd like to focus at least initially on the education, mm-hmm. you know, until I probably get into the BS and two, you know. <laughs> sure. So, but yeah. with that, I'd love to just, uh, you know, get a background on you and, uh, you know, who you are and what you do and um, even some of the culture too, like what you what you what you enjoy doing too, as uh, uh, as well as your job. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, my name's Oren DeVouvier. I'm currently the deer program manager or state deer biologist, uh, whichever you want to call it, for New Mexico Game and Fish. Uh, I've been in this position for just over seven years. Um, I grew up in West Virginia and Ohio, grew up hunting and fishing with my dad and my grandpa, and that's that's really where I developed the love for wildlife and the outdoors was those, those early formative years with, with my dad and my grandpa. Um, I don't know, I probably started hunting. Well, I started tagging along as soon as I could with my dad and my grandpa, uh, but actually started carrying a weapon probably around 10 years old, 10, 12 years old, something like that, probably around 10. Anyways, uh, grew up doing that in West Virginia, went to Ohio State for undergrad. I started as a business major, as I was telling you earlier. My intent with that business major was to open a hunting and fishing store. Uh, Went three years of school initially, or well, three years of school, and then um, got an internship there around my sophomore year of, of undergrad with the state auditor and started working at the state auditor's office and I was indoors all the time. And, uh, kind of, I realized like, you know, a business major is not necessarily going to guarantee me that I can have a hunting and fishing store and work in, work in hunting and fishing in the outdoors. Like I really wanted to. And so at the end of my junior year, um, I started kind of reassessing everything. I took a, a geology course and I thought, you know, I'd rather be outside looking at rocks, studying rocks and to be outside 
than to be stuck in an office all the time. And um, I started doing a little research and went and talked to my advisor, which I should have done probably my freshman year, but I didn't, you know, um, went and talked to my, uh, you know, talked to the advisor there and was like, Hey, you know, I want, I'm thinking about changing courses, but I, I want, I don't know really what, how much long it's going to take and stuff. And kind of told her the background and she's like, you know, you, you really love outdoors. You love wildlife. Why don't you look at the wildlife biology major? I thought, what the heck's wildlife biology major? You know, I thought all wildlife jobs were, um, were game wardens or park rangers. I didn't know there was a such thing as a wildlife biologist. So when I found that out at the end of my junior year of undergrad, I changed and it meant another year and a half of school uh, to finish that position. But man, it's been the best decision that I'm that I've made besides marrying my wife been the best decision I've made cool. uh, thus far. Um, had an internship with uh, Ohio DNR studying turkeys and reproductive success of turkeys there my senior year of college or my second senior year of college graduated in 2007 moved out to Colorado to work wildlife technician positions and bounced around the west for about five years four years just on different things from uh, sage grouse research uh, predator prey projects in Michigan looking at reproductive success of whitetails in Michigan and uh, predation rates on whitetail fawns Whitetail job in Pennsylvania, back out west, um, again, bouncing around different sage-grouse jobs and stuff, and then got my master's at Utah State from 2011 to 2013. I finished up in 2013 studying sage-grouse again, and then after that, where I was telling you I lived in Washington, I went up to Washington and worked for their Department of Fish and Wildlife for three years as a district biologist there in the central part of the state, and then in 20... The end of 2015, beginning of 2016, I interviewed for this, my current position, um, and, and was fortunate enough to receive or to be offered the position and moved down here in 2016. And I've been the state deer biologist since then. And so I really love it. It's been fantastic experience. Just my whole wildlife background, uh, this field, you know, I've lived in some gorgeous places, worked with some awesome wildlife. And then this, this job is really, you know, really what I love. I don't, I don't ever feel like I'm working, you know, it's always, always fun. So. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I, uh, man, you have the dream life, it seems, you know, um, when you describe like going through all those phases and then finally getting your position here, it's like you have, you have a lot of experience in wildlife. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I do have a, a good background in wildlife. Uh, it's, it's diverse, you know, from sage grouse. I mean, I, I trapped bats in Utah, you know, everything from like the real small mammals, um, all the way up to the biggest species I've worked on is black bears and, uh, or the most dynamic, I guess was black bears in Michigan, um, elk and, and deer and stuff like that. So I have a real good smattering of, of, um, experiences and opportunities uh working with wildlife and I think that's really helped me in my position you know um I was a little bit nervous coming in as the state deer biologist because I wasn't I didn't get my master's on deer biology it was on on sage grouse and I, I kind of felt a little uh out of my league with it even though I'd had technician positions on deer and worked with deer in Washington I just felt a little out of my league to be considered like the state deer biologist or you know the expert in yeah. Um, but I think all that background with all those other species has really helped. I mean, it all dovetails. There's, there's things you can take from your experiences from all walks of life, even my business training and, and undergrad, you know, like I've used it here as a wildlife biologist as well. So you can really kind of, uh, you know, 
you know, weave those fabrics together and make it, you know, use all those experiences in a way that, that benefits you and, and benefits your agency and stuff. Sure. Sure. Were you offered that deer biologist or did, is it something you saw and you said, Hey, I want to do that. I was offered it. Um, it was posted. Uh, so a lot of wildlife jobs are, are posted on the state websites and then on uh, Texas A&M wildlife job board is where a lot of wildlife positions are posted. So I saw it applied for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, interviewed and, and was offered it at that point. So it wasn't, you know, I, I had to go through the, the formal hiring process and all that. Sure. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, to that, you, you mentioned Texas A&M as well. Why, why just Texas A&M? Is it, is it, is that a big, like kind of wildlife type of school or it's a, it is, I don't know how that job board became so popular in the wildlife field. Um, there are a few others, but that's the one that if somebody has a wildlife job to, to fill, they always, it, it, not always, 95% of the time it's on posted on Texas A&M job board. And I, I really don't know how that came to be. Um, but it's the one that, again, one that everybody's referred to and stuff. And like I said, this one was posted on the department's website, um, but also just to reach a broader audience because they, because everybody in the wildlife field knows to go there to look for jobs. You know, it's posted on our website, but also at the Texas A&M job board. And it's like, hey, if you want to apply for this job, follow this link, go to New Mexico gotcha. Game and Fish website and apply through there. Cool, cool. That's awesome. So um, to be a wildlife biologist, um, it's in, and this is just me not knowing, heavy in sciences, heavy in math mm-hmm. as, as well, or both of those statistics, those kinds of things. Um, for someone who's like not school savvy, like, uh, you know, me personally, I was a high school dropout, you know, that's how I started. (laughs) And, uh, I was pushed into school because it was like, Hey, if you want to do this, you got to at least get the education for it. So I was never a good student, struggled in math, struggled in science. Mm -hmm. And so for somebody like me who like sees your, your day to day and is like, wow, that's amazing. I'd love to do that. But I'm not, I don't say I'm not smart, but I'm not like, those aren't my, um, my strong suits, my strong points. What would you say to somebody like that? Or what, um, or do you even remember like the, your classes or your curriculum and what, what you took that was maybe really difficult and, or, what you're actually using in the field. Is it something to where somebody can run through the education like fire and be like, oh, I'll never see that again. And then they get into their job and they're outside and they're actually, it's like, you know, a lot of jobs are like that. There's certain things you have to take, but you really don't necessarily use it in, mm-hmm. in, in your day-to-day. What's really important as far as your education? Yeah, um, kind of the ones you alluded to, the ones that I took that I'd never see again were like my gen ed courses, general education, theater, whatever, you know, that's just something you had to do to fulfill, to make you a more broadly trained student, you know, with university. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the biology courses, uh, those are, are crucial. Um, stats is crucial and communications is crucial. Those three Mm. are, are really the biggest. And I use those every day in my current job. Now I might not be sitting there looking at, you know, the cell structure of a plant or animal or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that like nitty gritty biology stuff, but, but the basics are there and I use it, um, use it on a daily basis. Like for instance, when we, when we talk about deer feed here in a little bit, um, like, 
the biology course of cell structures in the plants, you know, helps helps you understand a little bit better why do you eat this specific plant as opposed to that plant, you know, uh, those sorts of things. So again, I'm not like thinking it's not the nitty gritty stuff in, in biology courses that I, I think about every day, but it is applicable to to my field, my profession and stuff when it comes to food sources and everything else. So um, I, I kind of was like you. I wasn't the best student in undergrad, um, especially when I was a business major. I didn't see how me taking a biology course applied to my business, you know, what I was thought I was going for in business. And so I just kind of floated through. I didn't get the best grades, just enough to pass. Uh, my GPA reflects that. <laughs> um, but, and, and so I was taking those courses because I was fulfilling the requirements at that time. When I found out there was a wildlife biology major, I thought, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. It didn't come easy to me. The biology and chemistry courses still didn't come easy. Um, but at that point, I knew why I was taking them. And so I was more willing to, instead of going out with my friends on a Thursday night, stay in my room and, and read that chapter three or four times until I quasi understood it for the test. Um, so awesome. really it was once I found that purpose, I guess, yeah. then it, then it became easier. Same with stats. Um, my stats courses in undergrad that I had to take, they, they didn't come easy and stats doesn't come easy. To some people it does, to most it does not. Um, it, it's it's really a foreign language to me. And so I really, even in, in grad school, um, spent a lot of time trying to look at those stats courses and, and chapters and stuff and trying to figure out different models and whatnot. Because at that point I knew why, you know, I, right. I could apply it to, to my reason, you know, my purpose or whatever. So that really helped. Um, communications courses, I don't, Personally, I don't find them super difficult. Uh, some people might, but it, communications is like, it's super imperative for this position. Everybody thinks wildlife biologists is going to be just working with animals all the time. And uh, that's a fraction of what we do. It's, it's talking to hunters. It's, and, you know, talking to you today. Mm -hmm. um, when we try to set our season limits, we're out there doing public meetings and things like that. And so how can we, how can we get our message across to our constituent base, to our, to our target audience in the most effective and informative way. And we miss the mark all the time. We all do. Mm -hmm. But, um, but those classes really helped, help me understand and, and learn how to, you know, to reach my, my target audiences and stuff like that. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. What would you say your strengths are? Um, I think passion is one, um, <clears throat> passion because when I'm out hunting, when I'm working, I'm thinking about hunting. When I'm hunting, I'm thinking about work, right? And so they mm -hmm. go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, when I was turkey hunting, you know, when I'm turkey hunting, even in the spring, uh, I'm looking for deer. I'm looking for elk. I'm, I'm like, oh, deer have been browsing here. Or, or, oh, well, hunters have told me there's no deer in this area, but yet I'm I'm seeing all these buck rubs. So what's what's missing, right? And that's while I'm turkey hunting. And yeah. then when I'm when I'm working, when I'm flying surveys, when I'm uh, you know, at my computer work and I'm learning things like, Ooh, I can use that when I'm hunting, you know, later in next fall, if I get a deer tag there or whatever. So cool. I think passion's a, a strength of mine. Um, I, I, I do think communication is a strength of mine now. Uh, 
you know, we all have issues with communication. We all mishear each other, misstate what we're actually trying to say. Um, but I do think that I do think I'm able to connect with people fairly quickly. Um, and, and then when we do have those miscommunications, because we've built that connection, you can override those a little bit quicker, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just like kinda, I like to, I like to try to build teams and try to try to get group, groups of people together to accomplish a mission or a goal or things like that. And so I would say those are probably my strengths. Again, I don't think I'm like the smartest I don't ever feel like I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm not, but um, but I, I I do have. I feel like I have the ability, even though I'm not the smartest. Like I'll work hard to try to figure it out, and then if I can't figure it out on my own, I'm very quick to go to somebody that I've built a connection with and say, "Hey, what am I doing wrong here? Hey, can you help me with this? Help me understand or whatever." So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah, those are great strengths. I mean. Uh, you seem you strike me as the type of person that would be uh, somebody perfect to build a bridge between hunters and non-hunters or people who were um, opposed to people killing animals. You know, mm-hmm. seems like you could uh, help us with that. <laughs> it, um, have Have you done any of that kind of work? Yeah. Um, now, now, not officially. I mean, I do. I do talk to non-hunters and hunters. Um, I'll say weekly. Uh, and in, in some of our meetings, I was at uh, Wildlife Migrations and Corridors Conference a couple weeks ago, and there were both hunters and non-hunters in the, in the room and those sorts of things. And, um, and so I don't, although I don't have like, our agency has um, programs specifically geared toward bringing in new hunters and, and, and bridging that gap, getting the message out and those sorts of things. That's not my job on a day-to-day basis, but I do do that. Um, both personally and professionally and try to help, help the non hunters understand the necessity of hunting. Um, and then also help new and, um, uh, I'll say old hunters and words failing me at the moment, but new, new hunters and, and hunters further along in their hunting career, um, help them understand the need for hunting still, but also like how we portray hunting, right? That's important as well. Mm-hmm. And so, again, just trying to bridge the gap, like you said, between the two. It's it's not my job, but I do like to try to do it. No, yeah. You seem like you'd be good at it. If you had to tell, you know, this is another conversation we had kind of before we started, but if you had to talk to somebody who was uh, opposed to hunting, um, you know, um, and just was couldn't see the, the fact that we're killing animals that we supposedly like, um, mm-hmm. and that we can go to the supermarket and pick up meat if we're, if we eat meat. Um, if, if you were to talk to somebody and like really try to get them to understand a hunter and why we do what we do, what I know it's, this is probably like a really long, going to be a really long answer, but it, it is what it is. What would you say to somebody like that? How, how could you at least try to get them to understand? Yeah, I'll ramble here. Um, so anytime you eat meat, I know you understand this, but but for your audience, anytime you eat meat, something has to die. Whether you're eating meat from the supermarket or whether you're eating meat from something you harvested out in the field, um, an animal is is killed for you to eat that, that meat. Um, so like with hunting, it's a, 
after the after you get past the fact that something is harvested for you to eat um, with hunting it's a tool to manage wildlife to sustainable numbers to where it's to where they're not going to overpopulate and starve or um, you know cause human wildlife conflicts things like that and it's also a recreational opportunity um, but mo- but our goal is, as wildlife biologists is we want to provide recreational opportunity in a sustainable manner that's not going to negatively impact the population and or also so it's not going to create human wildlife conflicts and interactions you know deer getting hit on the road or you know uh overpopulating in city areas or urban areas and things like that and so um yeah the the folks that don't agree with hunting i think that they mostly see those trophy shots you know and they don't really see what goes behind it the trophy the trophy shot the trophy picture quote unquote trophy is um you know that's a culmination of a lot of hard work a lot of a lot of dedication um you you talked about the first couple years your your learning curve and stuff and and i think a lot of people think you just go out and just shoot an animal and you take a picture you think you're you know pound your chest or whatever and then go home and they don't they don't see that it took years of hard work hiking around reading the sign to get yourself set up in that in that um that shot i mean shoot turkey season this year i know i'm rambling but turkey season no it's good turkey season i hiked before i even heard a gobble this year it was a tough year for me initially i hiked 50 miles in two weekends just trying to find where the turkeys were because the snow pack was so different than what it has been in my previous seven years in new mexico uh they were distributed differently than what they were in my previous seven years. And so I hiked 50 miles before I even heard a gobble, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see that on your Instagram pictures. You mm-hmm. just see the picture of, of the turkey. You don't see the time that I spent out there, not or you spent out there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and when we're out there hiking around, we're not just solely looking to harvest something. We're looking, we're trying to read the sign. We're, we're, I think of it as a chess match. We're trying to figure out where these turkeys will go, how we go get in front of them, deer, elk, whatever and put us in a position to be successful. And, and so when we're doing that, we're looking at the birds out there. We're looking at, you know, you talked about the animals that we love. We, we see a turkey sign in an area that's completely different, deer sign, elk sign, in an area that's different than what we'd seen before. And you're like, huh, well, what are they doing here? Let's, you know, I want to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just grow to respect the animal, their ability to survive, their ability to, make do in the harshest of winters, the um, driest of summers and things like that. And they still, they just figure out where they need to go. And you really do form and develop that respect for them. Mm. So, yeah, it's hard to describe if you, until you experience it. Yeah. Um, But it really is a a love for the animal and, and the harvest is just one aspect of it. And I do, I personally, um, whenever I shoot something, I get sad. I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure when you've harvested animals, you get sad too. Mm-hmm. And I think most people do. Um, you know, you see there's are some hunting shows and, and I had to have a gripe with the ones where they just pump their fist and scream and stuff like that. Now that now part of that's the emotion being let out, you know, it's an, it's an intense and nervous thing when you're getting close to being to harvesting an animal because it's a culmination of all that hard work coming together. Um, but, but I think most of us, are sad, we're happy, 
um, it's every emotion you can experience at once that lets out at that moment. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's just respect for the animal. At least that's what I, I feel. I feel respect. I feel remorse and, and happiness at the same time and want to go, you know, I give my thanks. I appreciate the animal for, for the experience it led. And then to the food part of it, like I don't hunt something that I'm not going to eat. Uh, some people do. And as long as it's within the parameters that are set by the state game agency, um, that's okay. You know, yeah. uh, but, but it's my, like, I don't shoot coyotes because I'm not going to eat one. Some mm-hmm. people do. And that's perfectly fine. I'm not condemning that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I only like, I hunt to eat. I hunt. So my wife and I can have some lean, nutritious, you know, um, what's the term for it? Organic, I guess yeah, is the buzzword yeah. meals throughout the year. I can feed it to my fr- friends and family and, and those sorts of things. And, and that's part of it too. Sharing with, sharing with folks. I, I mean, I have a freezer full of elk meat right now and, um, I love giving it to some friends. I've given it some to some non hunters here recently that they were a little skeptical, like, ah, I don't know. And they ate it and they're like, man, Oren, can I have some more of that? You know? That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. And now I've kind of got off the wildlife biology aspect and more focused on the hunting aspect of it and, and me personally. Um, but again, it is a management tool that state agencies use to, to keep populations within acceptable levels for all stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like in, in New Mexico, um, when I say sustainable harvest and stuff, we don't, we don't, sorry, we don't harvest does in New Mexico because our populations can't take it. Now, Northern states, they do, their populations can handle it. And harvesting does is a way to keep those populations out at acceptable levels that aren't going to cause conflict issues with, with the, um, humans in that area in New Mexico. We can't, if we harvested does, um, even a slight increase in doe mortality, say like from 5% doe mortality, and that's including natural and human caused mortalities, an increase from 5% to 7% could make that population decline. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Um, I'm not good at remembering numbers, but an increase from five to 7% in mortality, doe mortality can make the population decrease by around 14 or 15 percent you know and so so we don't want to harvest those we only harvest bucks uh, on the deer part of things um and buck harvest is is totally sustainable unless there's less than 10 bucks per hundred does which doesn't happen i've never seen it happen uh the all does will be bred every year and so that's because bucks, we're getting in the biology th- side of things, but that's because that's good. Bucks, um, bucks can breed multiple does within a single year. And so, you know, one buck can, can service 10, 15 does in a year. And so unless you drop below 10 bucks per 100 does, mm. all does, 95% of the does, not the real old ones, but all does are getting bred every year. So buck harvest is not going to hurt the population. It doesn't drive uh, population growth or declines. It's, it's the female harvest. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, that's great that you touched on that because, you know, starting the question off is like with the non-hunters and trying to convince them. Uh, I'm wondering, like, what's a really basic way that you could explain that to somebody who doesn't know anything about wildlife management like i'm a non-hunter and i'm like well i don't understand why do you have to kill any of them like why 
why can't you just let them all live? Like, why do, why does any, why do any of them need to die? Now I, I know part of that. I'm not, you know, a wildlife biologist, but I know the, at least the basic parts of that. But for somebody who doesn't know, like I love deer or I love elk. I love to watch elk. I want to see as many elk as possible on the landscape. Um, what, and, and that goes for bear and mountain lion, whatever else, like why, why do we have to manage them? Yeah. If, if you don't, um, you know, population or wildlife populations, they, they cycle, it's boom or bust, right? Like they're, if, if they, if there isn't some sort of harvest, they'll eat themselves out of house and home and all of a sudden they're starving and then the population is just crash. And so, um, to harvest them, you harvest them to keep them within, uh, within the limits of what the landscape can, can withstand and keep them to be, you know, may keep them healthy. I'm, I'm a little bit, um, words are failing me right at the moment, but, uh, yeah, the harvest, it keeps it so you don't reach and exceed carrying capacity of the landscape. Um, so for example, you have, uh, uh you know, let's say 50,000 acres, uh, of land. What you're trying to, what you're saying is, is that, okay, Somebody who says, "Hey, you shouldn't kill anything in that fifty thousand or hundred a million acres, whatever it is," um, you're saying that, "Hey, the more that they breed, the more that they're going to eat, and the more they're going to, you know, the more stuff that they eat, they're not going to have uh, feed left for some of the other ones, and they're just going to starve anyway." Was basically what we're kind of saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll, yeah, ex- that's exactly it. eat themselves yeah. out of out of house and home, and then and then population will crash, and then they die from starvation and, and right. that sort of thing again just trying to break it down to us mm-hmm. kind of like a basic level to where somebody who's like they don't understand because i i feel like there's a i i don't under i don't understand why some people don't understand you know so i i think it would be great if people just or you know someone who says that i love deer i love elk and i i, I don't see why we're killing them uh you know one part of that is is having them understand why they need to be, whether it's you want to put it as killed or harvested or whatever, but they need to be taken off the landscape. And then the other part of that is like what you alluded to, the hunter aspect of like the, you know, holding up the trophies and that kind of thing. And why do why do they have to do that? Why you know why do they have to hold up that trophy or why do they have to kill that one that has the big antlers? And is that what they're after? Um, again, I understand that as well, but could you touch on what some people call age class and like, um, uh, I guess it, it would be called age class. Like if, uh, how, how you manage different areas for, um, uh, for tro- for trophies and with the state of New Mexico, are there a lot of areas like that? Are there a lot of trophy areas and how do you, uh, it's a long question, but how do you um, determine that? How do you say, hey, this area we're going to use for quality management or trophy management or, or trophy class or whatever, and this area we're going to do this with? Yeah, um, so I know the, the way you're using the term trophy is the way that I used it in quotes earlier. I, I try to shy away from that because... Um, trophy hunting does have bad light for non-hunters, right? The, mm-hmm. the folks that think that hunters are only out there to shoot the biggest animal. Now, don't get me wrong. If I had a 350-inch bull walk in front of me as opposed to a 
250 inch bull mm-hmm. elk, I would uh, I would shoot the 350 inch bull. We all want the bigger antlers. That's that's a representative of that species. It shows that animals survived long enough and is smart enough to evade animals and hu- or uh, predators and humans on the landscape long enough to grow those big antlers. So it is a challenge um, for sure. I hesitate to, to have ter- trouble with the term trophy because any animal that is harvested, whether it's last year's calf uh, or, you know, like a one-and-a-half-year-old elk, um, a forky mule deer or whatever, any animal that's harvested should be viewed as a trophy because mm. it is. It, it's, it's, um, it's something that should be respected. It should not be diminished from say a 200 inch bull, a spike bull, for instance, shouldn't be diminished from 350 inch bull as far as that goes. Like they're both equally good point. Yeah. Equal, equal trophies in my mind. My, in fact, the favorite elk I've ever shot was a spike. First elk I ever, ever called in. I've, uh, the biggest I've shot is a 315 inch bull, but that spike is my favorite because it was the first elk I ever called in. My wife was with me and stuff. So yeah, that's where I have trouble with the term trophy to get to your point about, how do we, I'm going to use the term quality as opposed to trophy. I like that. Yeah. Um, to get to the, to get to your question about that, how do we, how do we allocate quality units versus opportunity units? That's the two terms I use in yeah. deer management. It was a long, it was a long question. It started out with, you know, like how do we, uh, get the non-hunter to see like certain aspects of this, like what is game management? And then, then they have that second part of it, which is the trophy. So sorry, it was like a, kind of a spackled question no no worries and if i if i'm not answering how you how you asked interrupt me and i'll no no i think that they 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 mesh those two sides they mesh. so i think and the way you're answering is great okay all right um so we as a state agency um we allocate those units based on what our constituents want as long as it's not going to negatively impact wildlife populations if our constituents want more of a quality unit here in this area, um, then as long as it's not going to negatively impact that population or other wildlife, we'll, we'll di- dictate it as a quality unit. And in that case, they're typic- in the quality units, there typically are more animals on the landscape. Uh, the age structure of the males is generally greater. So in elk instances, you might have more seven and a half, eight and a half year old bulls uh, than the younger bulls and in deer instances, you might have more six and a half, seven and a half year old bucks than, than younger bucks. Um, or not than younger bucks, but then you would in opportunity units rather mm-hmm. in opportunity units, we manage for hunting opportunities to go and acquire meat. And so you don't typically see those bigger antlered animals in those opportunity type units. Uh, some folks just want to go hunting every year, go out with their family, go out and get a chance to fill their freezer with some uh, some good meat and those sorts of things. So that's where, that's where, um, as an agency, what we, what we go toward is, is what our stakeholders mostly like what they want is again, as long as it's not going to impact the population. Um, so what was, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, I guess, um, as you were talking, I, I even had another question. Uh, and that is like for somebody who is, um, new to, to quality units, um, 
age class, like those kinds of phrases. Mm -hmm. And they're looking through the brochure, the the game management brochure, and they're like, okay, this is a quality unit. This is this is a general unit. Like, what is what does this all mean? Somebody who's brand new, does it break down? I, and that's me not knowing again, that like knowing so much about the brochure, but does it break down? very well like if you're looking at it what the explanation is hey this is a, a quality unit means this a general unit means this these are the lists of the quality units these are the lists of the general units is it is it broke is it like that or um kind of yeah we do so in, in our rule book um there are when you look at like the hunt that you want and then when it says fee type we have standard or quality that's where it's broken oh, down fee type Fee type, yeah. I see. Okay. Uh, standard or, or quality, and then in the back, it, it really shows what a standard hunt is, and that's where I say opportunity hunt uh, is is also our standard and opportunity. I use those interchangeably. I see. Um, and so a standard hunt is is more like um, a chance to go hunting. It's not as highly of a coveted unit to go in. Um, it doesn't mean there's less deer or elk. It just means maybe there aren't as many big bucks or big bulls. Um, and then it's also, um, we also put more hunters on the landscape in their standard opportunity. To understand. Units. Okay. The quality unit, we generally have fewer tags. Gotcha. Because there's fewer tags, harvest is lighter and that allows those males of the population to get bigger. Um, because they're not harvested as heavily. So you kind of, as I was talking there, um, you kind of, you asked about like non-hunters, I think initially, like mm, how, yeah. how do you understand, how do you help a non-hunter understand um, the quality or, or, or quote unquote trophy hunting uh, as opposed to just hunting? The, the, how do you help them understand when they only see the, the pictures of people who with the biggest bucks or biggest bulls and they're just smiling and stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to trying to talk to them about the experience leading up to it and, uh, leading up to that harvest. Um, and again, the quality or the, the larger antlered animals are they're they're more, they are more coveted because they're wiser, right? They're harder to get than a young of the year buck or bull or last year's buck or bull, rather a forky or a spike or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm not really answering that very well, I guess. No, you are. It's, I think, um, so what I've heard, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you have a lot more experience in everything, hunting, you know, you grew up hunting when you were 10. I, I just started, so... Um, so correct me if I'm wrong when I hear, I'm telling you stuff that I'm hearing either on other podcasts or I'm seeing on <clears throat> on uh, YouTube videos or whatever. But when somebody says uh, age class in a unit and when they say, they sometimes, of course, use trophy, like we're saying, instead of, um, instead of quality, which I like quality better. But um, I was, I, I even had a, a tough time understanding like the dynamics of, of that. I'm like, okay, well, why is it that they they we're shooting the biggest antlers, um, other than the fact that they look great? You know what I mean? Why is it? And then you hear people say, um, "Oh, it's because they're the oldest," like you just mentioned. They're they're the wisest, and when you uh, harvest that animal, 
you you leave space for the younger bulls to to move into that spot whereas that bull may have been either causing problems or not allowing those bulls to reach their maturity is that is that correct yeah it's not they they won't i guess allow them to reach maturity um through fighting and killing I yes mean, yes 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 uh that that is um yeah, I think that's correct. I had a good answer to that as you were talking. I forgot it. <laughs> I have to cut this out. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's more, again, it's more for like uh, somebody like myself and people who don't know. It's more of like why when you see certain things, because we're, I mean, social media is is, a, is paramount now, right? That's mm-hmm. all people look at is like, and what you want people to see on social media is the biggest and the best of what they can offer, whether it's how pretty they are, how, you know, good they look and what they can show you. So they're showing big bucks. And then you have people that are uh, non-hunters that are like, of course, they're like holding this big thing up and they're smiling. And you alluded to the fact of the hard work. We get that because we've been there. Like we, I know why, even if sometimes cringeworthy, like watching somebody high five and oh my gosh, and then animals laying there dead even somebody who's a hunter at some points would be like, okay, enough of the high five and, you know, maybe show a little, you know, uh, respect or, but I get it, especially if you've been humping it all day and it's like, it's night, you got up and it's dark and you're, it's almost nightfall and you've been busting your tail all day and you finally found the animal that you've been looking for for months and yeah, I get the high five. And so we understand that they, the person who's not putting in that hard work or seeing that, you know, scouting for months and that kind of thing before the actual harvest. But the other part of that is, is like the biology side of it is it's also the reason why we shoot that big animal, not just because it looks great, but also because we're making room for uh, taking that older bull out of circulation. Is that correct? Or So multiple things. One, I just remembered that, is taking their gene pool out, right, because they're older now. Um, and is that correct, if I'm saying that correctly? And then the other part of that is, is when I say causing problems in the herd or causing problems in the area, is that bull that you're killing, that older bull you're that you're killing, killing other bulls possibly that have, that could have moved into that spot. You know, I could be wrong in that. I don't know. And forgive me, whoever's listening that knows that I don't know, but I, I just don't, you know, I, I'm trying to figure it out myself too. Sure. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they can kill each other, uh, through fighting and stuff like that. That does happen every year. Um, the, the older bulls, you know, they, or, or bucks or whatever, you know, the does select which ones they want to breed uh, uh, in general. And so, um, you know, they generally do select for the older, the, the, the tougher. A lot of times that co- coincides with larger antlers and that sort of thing. Uh, the older and tougher males of the, of the population. Um, and so when you do take that out, it does, it does allow for room on the landscape for other bucks, other bulls to, to breed, you know, to gain that nutrition that was, you know, being eaten by that other bull, other buck. Um, it allows for when you take, uh, animals out of the population, it allows for those younger ones to grow up healthy. It allows for, uh, next year's fawn or calf crop to, you know, acquire appropriate resources. so They don't come in underweight, you know, or aren't born underweight necessarily, or, 
I mean, not always, there's a lot of nuances into the, in that, but, um, you know, that's the theory behind it is, is, mm-hmm. is, is taking those it's additive versus compensatory mortality is how we term it in, in biology. Um, additive means additive mortality is if you shoot an animal that wouldn't have otherwise died, you're adding to the harvest mm-hmm. or adding to the, the total mortality for that herd. Um, Whereas if you didn't shoot it, it would have survived till next year and more, you know, more animals would have, would have, uh, um, been put on the landscape through recruitment from, from the previous year. Additive mortality typically occurs when you're not at landscape carrying capacity or habitat carrying capacity. So there's enough food resources on the landscape for all animals, most animals to survive to that next year and to recruit into the next year and populations to, you know, to grow compensatory mortality happens where if you shoot a bull or buck, doe, cow, whatever, um, if you shoot it, it doesn't, it doesn't add to the total mortality of that herd. Like that animal is going to die anyway, because you're at habitat carrying capacity, whether it was through starvation in the winter, mm. because there's not enough food on the landscape or whether it's, you know, starvation in the summer. Cause the drought, you know, impacts how much they can eat or, you know, water availability or whatever. So compensatory mortality is you're taking one animal out of, out of the landscape that, that wouldn't have survived anyway. Think of it as like a, a bucket of ping pong balls, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, when you're not at the top of that bucket of ping pong balls, um, you can, you can keep adding ping pong balls till you get to the top and that's habitat or landscape carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. So, as you're adding ping pong balls into the bucket, if you're adding five and you're taking out one, you're taking out two before you get to the top, that's additive, right? Mm. When you take them out, that's additive mortality or, or whatever. But when you're at the top, you can only put in so much and you're not going to get any more out. So you put in five, you can take out five. Mm. So that's compensatory mortality. So five fawns are going to survive till next year. We can harvest five this year and populations will, will stay st- stable or maintain you know Mm -hmm. does that make sense does that kind of help a little bit yeah it 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 makes it makes sense and and this is what i wanted to kind of get across to again the non-hunter is for them to kind of see the that biology part of it is like why why are we why are we shooting these animals or why are we harvesting these animals well they're you know they're going to die anyway you know there's you know there's over carrying capacities there's under and and reasons why we're doing what we're doing on both ends, whether it's we're just killing or harvesting, um, or whether we're killing uh, quality, you know, ver- you know, either way, because I think I think that's a two part thing for non hunters. It's like, hey, this is why I hate it. I hate it because they're holding up this trophy, and and then there's a reason for that, other than the fact that they look great. You know, that's part that's part of what we do. Yeah, like you. You alluded to if you're going to see a big and a small, you're going to shoot the bigger one. Um, and the other part of that is having them understand um, why, just basically why we're killing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Of course, for meat, but also because of the landscape itself. And that's where I feel like there's a uh, maybe like a disconnect of of uh, of what non-hunters uh, you know don't see. You know, there's a disconnect there of like, why are you doing this? Well, there's there's multiple reasons. It's not just we 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 want to uh, hold up uh, a trophy. So, yeah, um, 
I got. I have two points if you don't mind me making real quick. And, Absolutely. And, and ones yeah. to ones to your harvesting of bucks and harvesting of trophies. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I'm I'm bad with retaining numbers. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, but there was a study by Bishop et al. in Colorado a few years ago. Oh, it would have been ten years ago now at this point. Um, and and they were looking at what we're talking about carrying capacity and and why harvesting you know bucks or or whatever. Um, you know, maybe good or why it's not, uh, um, detrimental to the population. And, and I, again, I don't remember his numbers, but, but basically say you increase, um, buck to doe ratios by from 20 bucks per hundred does to 25 bucks per hundred does. Then this is getting back to your allowing for room on the landscape. Uh, if you increase just by like around five bucks per hundred does, that means that your fawns per hundred does next year, your recruitment next year could, um, could be, could be decreased by like, like 12 animals or something like that. And so by, by allowing those bucks to live or having them live, so the buck to day ratio increases, you're actually reducing your population a little bit down the line. Now, this isn't exactly how he termed it, but, um, but because you're allowing those bucks to live, the buck to day ratio is increasing you're not recruiting as many into the population the following years. Mm-hmm. You know, your fawns aren't surviving and stuff like that. So, but if you, if you take those bucks out, if you reduce the buck to doe population from 25 bucks per hundred does to 20 bucks per hundred does, then you're actually creating room on the landscape for next year's fawns to be recruited into the population and populations can grow. And that's, that's again, to your, your point about food sources and stuff like that and, mm-hmm. and the inner competition between the animals. The other point I want to make is is taking those those top bucks or bulls out of the populations. Um, aside from the challenge of getting those animals, it's really a success story for the North American model of conservation uh, to to have these quote unquote trophy animals: the three hundred fifty inch bulls, the one hundred eighty inch bighorn sheep, two hundred inch bucks. You know. Um, the turn of the century, the 1900s, it was all meat and market hunting in the U.S. Um, and at that point when they were, you know, you'd see those pictures of stacks of buffalo, stacks of elk and, and things like that. And uh, people would just shoot them, take the hide, sell it to market. Same with same with all sorts of game birds and stuff. And not even utilize the meat. And that, that, um, that unrestricted harvest of animals it really, uh, it really made our populations decline wildlife throughout North America. Like it just, they all were super, super low. They were only found elk, deer, turkeys were only found in the most remote places that weren't easily accessible to these market hunters. Um, the, the wildlife managers and biologists back at that point and the legislators, you know, they, they recognized, Hey, we need to do something or, we're not going to have wildlife as we know it for, for future years. They saw the mm-hmm. declines and stuff like that. And so at that time they enacted the law, um, where we had to restrict, you know, harvest was restricted and the North American model is we restrict harvest. It's the wildlife is managed by the state wildlife agencies as a public trust. So our public constituents entrust us to manage wildlife for healthy and sustainable populations as I've been talking. Mm. Um, and then conservation is hunter funded. So 
our license dollars, our our ammunition, uh, rifle purchases, firearm purchases, taxes on those go toward funding hunter dollar like taxes on ammunition and firearm sales goes into the pit like it's called PR funds Pittman Robertson Act uh it was in 1950-ish when that came in and that's you know that's a federal tax excise tax that that then is leveraged with state dollars so say you bought your hunting license uh $100 will just make it easy say you bought a hunting license for $100 that $100 goes directly to the state that's a that's a state dollar to the state game agency then that hundred dollars can be leveraged with that excise tax, the Pittman Robertson dollars, and get matched three to one. So basically, mm. you can turn that one hundred dollars into four hundred dollars that goes directly toward wildlife management. That's what funds our surveys. That's what funds our habitat improvements, um, land purchases, things like that. And so that's all hunter funded. Our, our wildlife management is, and it doesn't just benefit deer; it benefits non-game birds, you know, songbirds, um, small mammals, snakes, stuff like that. Like it, wildlife conservation is the North American model. Wildlife conservation is hunter funded, uh, which is super cool. And that's why hunting is important also, right? Like, because, because that, that money goes toward conservation activities and, and those sorts of things. I don't think non-hunters think about that. I don't think they realize that, you know, the bald eagle, the bald eagles here, because of those laws that were enacted and the protection laws that were enacted at the turn of the century, 1900s, but also because of hunters. Like the bald eagle is as persistent on the landscape as it is because we have protected it and and we have, or, you know, grizzly bear, whatever, um, rattlesnake, all that, because hunters, when I say we, hunters have, have funded that conservation activity. And so circling way back around to your initial question of why that trophy animal is or you know big large buck is is so exciting to see why why we want to take it out it's a success story right yeah we didn't have those big bucks at the turn of the century they are big bulls turn of the century they were almost decimated out of there they didn't get old enough to get that big and so by allowing them to live seven and a half eight and a half ten and a half years old it's like hey our conservation is working this is this is what our wildlife you know this is what they should look like on the landscape yeah. you know and and this is how they can be it's it's uh this is how they can grow to with with proper management and those sorts of things so it is a success story as a in addition to the the challenges and those sorts of things so and it also shows that landscape is healthy enough the populations are healthy enough to allow those animals to grow to 10 and a half year old bulls or eight and a half year old bucks um it shows that our habitat's healthy, our populations are healthy, there's not disease issues, we're not ever harvesting and all that. And so Yeah. I don't know. Super, super rambly, I know. No, those are great points that Pittman Robinson, I was hoping that we would touch on that too, because you're right. There's a non hunter I'd say the majority of the time they don't realize that without that that act, we might not have any I mean, it's extreme to say that and but it it correct me if I'm wrong, that we may not even have a lot of these animals on the landscape if it wasn't for hunters, like actually uh, funding that, you know, funding their their uh, their lives, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's super important to, to mention. Um, man, it's uh, there's so much that a, a non-hunter doesn't understand, I feel, you know, especially like you're talking about the passion of it too. Like they they don't get the passion of it. I've asked so many people who don't hunt to come out with me and I've, you know, some people have, 
And I'd say almost 100% of the time they get it. You know, they, mm -hmm. they understand, you know, uh, they may not like it. They may not like certain aspects of it. And some people even actually fall in love with it too. But for the most part, they at least understand, you know, why, why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, the Pittman, I was, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, you know, I don't know the actual numbers, but I know that, um, that without those sales and without those dollars, you know, uh, protecting the animals, I don't think that they'd be even be around, mm -hmm. you know, and I wish people, I wish people did know that. So, so thank you. Thank you for that. It was a, it was a long question that hopefully we got some like really good answers to. Um, I rambled enough, if not. So. No, no, it was totally cool because I, if, if nothing else out of this conversation that I, you know, I want to know more about deer, but uh, if nothing else, I would really love to have more uh, hunter advocacy uh, from, from, you know, not just hunters, of course, because let's face it, a lot of hunters don't do it right, you know, they or don't care. They're just going to go hunting anyway. It's like they're too busy either working and doing whatever they're doing. They know when hunting season is. They just put their head down. They go hunting. They don't do a lot of the advocacy work. And so I feel like it'd be really cool to have a lot more people who hunted and understood kind of what we do. Um, and the more people who did it, the, I, I feel like the more, uh, you know, that we wouldn't have so much of, or and and the people who just understood it, we wouldn't have so much of a fight all the time. I mean, you're always going to have your people who just don't want anything killed, and I get that. There's, there's all kinds of people out there, but I think the more people who do understand it, uh, and the more people we have, quote, on our side, I guess, um, the more we would have just l less fighting, you know, mm -hmm. and... And it's all, I feel it's all about education and them and really understanding. So thank you for that. Like all that is, is super, super duper helpful. But I had some questions prepared for you. Mm -hmm. Um, the first one was, um, I'm new, I'm a brand new hunter pretty much in New Mexico and the landscape is totally different from Hawaii where I've hunted over the last like, you know, four or five years, like we were talking about, and then also different from Washington, the state of Washington, which you're familiar with too. I drew a tag, a deer tag in 5B. I don't know if you're too familiar with that unit. Um, but for me, who's brand new, who just drew that tag in 5B, you're a deer biologist. How would, um, do you know, first of all, do you know too much about that unit? And could you kind of, uh, in addition to what the, the short paragraphs say on the website about it, um, maybe tell me a little bit about that unit and how maybe somebody like yourself would, would approach that unit, uh, to hunt for mule deer this year. Yeah, I am familiar with it. And it, um, by the way, it's a rifle, it's rifle tag too. So it's the, the, that November time period. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I am familiar with it. Um, I've flown it for surveys. Uh, I've, I've hunted in that unit, not for deer, for turkeys. Um, it's a real good unit, real good unit for deer. It's, it's one of our quality units or um some people might think of as trophy unit I, i'll use quality we don't have a whole lot of tags i think 30 for your hunt well um for that whole unit and so <clears throat> it's you're not going to be on top of other hunters we restrict the harvest in there pretty good uh see so there's a, plenty of elbow room there's a lot of deer um some real nice bucks in there a lot of elk also mm -hmm. uh, uh turkeys as well um if I, if I had that tag and was going in blind, uh, I would first 
talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the local game warden, uh, she's super knowledgeable about that area. She's in it every day. Uh, I'd give her a call. Um, Ariel is her name. And, uh, um, you know, say, hey, what do you know about it? Uh, and I can give you that. Okay, later. cool. Um, uh, what do you, you know, hey, what do you know about this unit? Where where are you seeing the animals? Where are you seeing them? I think you're, I looked it up, November 4 to 8 is your hunt. Um where they go be at that time frame? What's the snow level like and stuff like that? And obviously, we're talking a normal year uh, on on snow levels and everything. But um, <clears throat> I would look at I would get Onyx or uh, a paper map from the Forest Service and find out the road system and those sorts of things. There are a decent amount of roads in there um, that you can get around with, and then there's a lot of area in between those roads you can you know hunt pretty good. But yeah, and then just go drive it in the summer and and you know pick a few spots out on the maps and be like, oh, I want to check out this road and that road. And so that way, when you're there opening morning, you're not not completely uh, blind and, and, you know, just figuring it out that day. I'd try to figure it out ahead of time. Um, there's a lot of, so on the West side of the unit, it's a little bit lower than the East side of the unit. Uh, a lot of Oaks on the West side, um, which deer really love that mountain Oak, uh, scrub Oak to, to feed on. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's good deer feed. Um, it's, I, I guess I'll say it's characterized by like knife ridges, uh, especially on that West side where there's little canyons, uh, where most of the forest roads go up those canyons and then on the knife ridges, they're super rugged. Um, and they're pretty, it's just kind of like go up one side and then drop down the other. They don't really flatten off at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on those, those hillsides of the knife ridges where those oaks are. And that's where I, I see most of the, the deer on those knife ridges. The mm-hmm. West side, it's, it's not necessarily as much, knife ridges it's more ponderosa pine um type habitat and it's it's broader ridges uh there's there's mostly roads down on the west side down most of the ridges um forest roads down most of the ridges the ridges are broader and then like sometimes the bottoms will have ridges sometimes they won't but again if i if i had that tag i'd mostly i mostly focus on the like Let's see, how do I do that? I guess like uh, probably top third of the ridges, but I also, and, and then the bottom, bottom of the ridges where they meet the, I, when I'm hunting, I guess, I mostly look for changes in topography and changes in habitat type. And that seems to occur the tops of the ridges, like the very top of the slopes and the very bottom of the slopes is where those changes seem to occur. Mm-hmm. That's where I focus my efforts. Now, you'll go out there and you'll see one right smack in the middle of, of a ridge, you know, or, yeah. or top of a slope or, or middle of a slope or whatever. Um, they'll just, just do whatever. But yeah, I would, I would drive, drive those units. It's not really much of a glassing unit, maybe on the West side of the unit, you might find some high points in glass. Um, but the topography is such that it's, you're not glassing large swaths of land like you would be in some other units. It's pretty, the topography and habitat's a lot more enclosed. And so I'd probably way I hunt anywhere I go is I hike a little bit and then I stop in glass for five minutes or whatever. And then I hike a little bit more till I have a different vantage point. And I know I walk by a lot of animals. I know I do, but mm-hmm. I can't force myself to haven't to this day forced myself to sit very long and I can't sit behind a spotting script for an hour. I'm, I'm, I'm always moving. So yeah. that's how I'd hunt it. If I was there too, is just keep slipping along until you find something and, you know, reading the sign 
yeah looking for tracks and stuff sure um to your point there as far as like moving a lot i'm the same way like i i move a lot and i i know that i'm bumping stuff constantly and and i also like the experience of hunting in hawaii with the axis deer the axis deer yeah you can you'll bump them but you'll also they'll also sit right there next to you while you're standing there and then you can walk right by them are mule deer like that as well yeah they are um they'll they will sit and watch you one thing that's pretty unique about not unique the one thing that's pretty known about mule deer um they're not as skittish as say like whitetails uh so they'll let you get a little bit closer um just because they've they've evolved with predators that that they can evade so they're not as as quickly to um to flee as say like a whitetail is or something and so yeah you can you, you can kind of a lot of times get a little closer um and if you do flush them they generally bound off 100 yards and then they stop and look and reassess hey what was that predator because you know mountain lions they can't cover 100 yards distance before that deer's already made it out of the way so you know that, that 100 150 yards is, is kind of a safe place for them so if you bump them they'll generally go out and stop and look back and be like the heck was that that just you know yeah just disturbed yeah. my rest or my feeding or whatever and so um and i have gone through you know sitting glassing and i look over and 50 yards 100 yards away a deer's looking at me that i didn't see mm-hmm. you know and kind of like your point with the axis deer like they'll just sit and watch and, and those sorts of things so um yeah they're not quite as skittish whitetails when you bump them it's generally in thicker brush and so you're like right on top of them and a lot of times they're out of there before before you know so they're just quicker to flee i guess yeah than muleys um more can, can i use the restroom yeah, yeah absolutely okay. you know, a positive. Right. yeah no problem um so we were talking about uh i think uh a little differences between axis and mule deer and like how skittish one one or both can be um I, this is going to be a little bit off topic, but this is along the lines of uh, like deer behavior. This is going to sound weird, and you're probably, I don't know if you're going to believe me, <laughs> but I have a, a good friend of mine who hunts on uh, Molokai. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Hawaiian Islands, but Molokai is a man, it's probably one of the most beautiful islands out of all of them. And uh, very well protected and uh, by the locals there, and for good reason, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful place. But thousands of axis deer, and a good friend of mine is an avid hunter. Him and his his family they hunt uh, almost every afternoon. They see the the activity of the axis deer, and I've been very fortunate to uh, be able to get out in the forest with them and and be up high in the mountains and just have like these really magical experiences with those guys they're amazing and uh my buddy Lonnie that's that's the that's the father he told me one time that he's seen uh axis deer crawling like uh, behind bushes um like knowing that we're there and he he'll, he'll sit there and he'll see them crawling like on all fours like and I'm and I've never seen it, but I've seen their behavior, and I could definitely believe it. And I would—he's uh, not going to lie to me. I mean, he's this—he we, we we hunt, you know. So he tells me, like, dude, that day will crawl. So hearing that, first of all, do you believe that? <laughs> and then the other part of that is—is is that similar to uh, 
you know, whether it's mule deer, I'm, I'll be hunting mule deer in that unit, but do mule deer behave like that or can they and or whitetail or coos or any other deer? I mean, I do believe, I do believe it. I don't know what predators access deer evolved with. Um, tiger, I think in India, I I, want to say tiger in India. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I could see that. I have seen wildlife do some things where, um, it was obvious to me that they were, evading or avoiding me or uh, another hunter or predator or whatever. I haven't actually seen crawling. Um, I could see, I could see something like that or or crouch real super low. I have seen deer, uh, both muleys and whitetail. Like I'll be hiking along and um, I'll happen to just look out my right or left or whatever, hunting, slipping along and Mm -hmm. happen to look out that direction. And they'll be laying with their head like flat on the ground looking at me, you know, to stay low really? and those sorts of things. Yeah, Flat on the ground? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, like with their chin, you know. I've seen that a couple of times. That's freaky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 you know, and so, you know, that was obviously them. Yeah, hiding. Them hiding, yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen them, uh, turkeys are really good at it, and I've seen deer as well. Um, they somehow don't know how to get, a tree, a ravine, whatever between you and them, if they know you're there and, and get like, know how to use that topography or that cover break to get out of the way, you know, mm-hmm. away from you and those sorts of things. So I have seen them use different things to uh, escape or to survive really. Um, and they just seem to have an innate ability or uh, innate knowledge, innate ability to, to do that, to know how to put that cover between you and it. Mm-hmm. That way you can't get it. You know, it's kind of like a, a blocker in football, you know, a running back using his tackle to run behind. And, and that's yeah. kind of what you kind of think a turkey's doing or a deer's doing when it's when it's using that cover break or that rock or whatever to get away from you. Yeah. Are they really that smart in that um, – how, how do I put this? Uh, for instance, like uh, <clears throat> like knowing – like a truck is coming down the road, you know, what kind of behavior are they smart enough to, to hide or to do they, because we'll see, like, we'll stop, like we'll be driving and we'll see one and we'll stop, you know, and then they'll run. Mm -hmm. But when they hear that rumble of the truck, is it more of, do they, would you notice them like running right away when they hear the rumbling way off in the distance or would, are they more a mule deer anyway, more apt to stay in the, in the location and watch? Are they more inquisitive that way? Or they're more, I would think a whitetail would be, would just take off running, boom, you know? So, uh, yeah, as far as mule deer behavior, what what would you say? I don't think they're smart. They're they're smart, yes, but I don't think they're, um, I don't think they connect the dots like we do, right? They Mm -hmm. don't don't problem solve or... um, Again, the term's failing me, but I don't think they, uh, <clears throat> I don't think they think about it the same way. They know, like if it's feeding there, mule deer, whitetail, elk, turkey, whatever, if it's feeding there, it's entered that area because it's assessed that it's safe for them to mm-hmm. feed at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And so if it hears a vehicle rumbling that's a couple hundred yards off, um, it, it likely won't flee right away 
uh, just by just from hearing it because it knows it's safe here. It doesn't know that if it bounds that direction, a different direction, that it's going to be safe where it goes to, right? Mm. But when you drive by, and we've seen this, when you drive by and a vehicle just drives by and you look at it as you're driving by, it just puts its head up and looks at you yeah. and kind of assesses, is this something that's going to be dangerous to me or not? And if it seems like if you don't change the attitude of the vehicle, if the vehicle just stays on its course, same speed and everything, uh, it seems like they just kind of watch and then put their head down and, and go back to feeding. It's it's kind of when you stop that that, that change in attitude of the vehicle, uh, change in direction or whatever, makes them think, oh, well, this is something that may be a threat to me. Mm-hmm. And vehicles, like, they didn't evolve with vehicles, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, they didn't have to worry about it. And so their natural... Uh, recognizing a vehicle as a natural predator, I don't think they'd do that because it's it's not something that's been ingrained to them. Now, each individual can learn, oh, shoot, when when this vehicle stops, you know, maybe it got grazed by a bullet one time because the vehicle stopped and shot from it, or maybe it was standing there and it, like a big, loud, scary bang happened when this vehicle stops. And so, you know, they can like learn. Learn behavior, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I don't, I don't think it's, <clears throat> they didn't evolve with that. And so... I think as long as the vehicles don't change course direction, they're, they're kind of just watching. Um, I think the same with, with people, you know, if, if we're a couple hundred yards off um, and they haven't had that experience of somebody shooting a couple hundred yards at them or, or their uh, counterpart, um, they're more inclined just to watch and assess, okay, is this, is this two-legged thing going to change direction and come my way? And if it is, then I'll jump. But if it's not, I'll just stay here because I know I'm safe here so far because I assessed it coming in. You know, there wasn't a cougar or wolf or whatever, you know, here. Yeah. The other thing is they, I mean, every, every moment of every day, something is trying to eat them. They're a prey species, right? Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say each individual is trying to be eaten every day, but they have to watch out for it. They have to, they have to assess every move they make to see if it's a safe move for them to make. If the, if the rewards outweigh the risk, you know, of, of going to this area to acquire the resources. So, you know, they're, they're, they're adapted with predators trying to eat them. So they, they have to like, they assess going in, um, and they have to assess is me fleeing this one thing that I see less risky than going to an area that I don't know what's over the next hill. And I'll see that like in my surveys, um, will be flying along and they don't know what a helicopter is. They just know it's big, loud, scary right above them and, and chasing them. And we have to chase them a little bit, you know, a couple hundred yards to, to classify the herd. So we'll circle. I see it all the time. And, and I don't think hunters really, really realize. And, and I didn't until, until I started flying them. Um, I used to think when they got bumped by a vehicle or hunter, uh, that that animal was just completely gone and this area was blown out. Me as a hunter, mm-hmm. before I started, before I was a biologist, I thought if an animal was spooked, it was just completely blown out, this area is ruined. Once I started flying surveys, I rec- or I saw and I see it all the time that we'll, we'll jump a herd with the helicopter and we'll fly it, get the composition classification of the, that herd and go and take off, right? And then we come back... 10 minutes later because our transect takes us back there 
and that herd, I might see it from a distance, or we might like fly back over that herd because it ran into our next transect or whatever. Um, they're already they're already back to feeding. They're already back to their mating strategies. Like they they've within a couple minutes they forgot about this big loud th- loud thing that's above them. So they might only jump on the backside of that ridge, and then they're back to what they were doing before. Wow! It just doesn't make sense for them to keep running, right? Because they yeah. don't know what they're running toward. So like a real short term memory there. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Do they do you notice that they circle back around to where they were if it was a big feeding a nice good feeding area, or mm-hmm. do they just move mostly? I mean, of course, it, it varies, mm-hmm. but would you say that the herd moves and just stays in that area or moves to another area or circles? I've seen axis deer circle back around and go right back to where they were. I think a lot of times <clears throat> they'll circle back. I've seen it on foot um, and, and in the helicopter, but I think a lot of times they will circle back. It may be an hour or two before they circle back. It may be 15 minutes, but they were at that initial spot for a reason. Mm. Whether it's safety for our, for for bedding cover, uh, to uh, to be vigilant for watching for predators, or whether it was the forage base was good enough there that that they they wanted to be there, so they were there for a reason initially. They will circle back, whether it's ten minutes or two hours, I don't know. I saw I really really started putting this together when I was turkey hunting in Washington when I lived up there. Um, I had this one spot where I got into turkeys almost. Almost every time I was there, for something about that area that attracted them to that spot. And so I'd go in and watch them. And one of the fields they were on was private. Um, and then I was on public land just adjacent to it. And they'd like kind of circle on and off that public private land. And sometimes I would bump them and I think, oh man, I'm done. You know, the day's shot, they're gone. But I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I just like hang out. And before I know it, an hour later, they'd come back through gobbling. Wow. Or as I was watching them on the private land, um, twice I saw coyotes rush the flock and bust them out of there and they, they leave the field and the coyote looks around like, Oh, what the heck? You know, there goes my meal. And so I just sit and watch. And then a half hour later, that flock comes back in and then, or Eagle or whatever. And so, you know, they're just constantly being bumped or pursued by, by predators. And so they want to come back to that area that they knew that was safe. Mm. So I think they will circle back. Why, why do you think that is? Do you think that, I know this is getting out there a little bit, maybe as far as their intelligence, but do you think it's because they know that you're not coming back over there? They've seen it before. They know that you think that it's blown out and you're not coming back, you know, because that's what we think, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why they circle back. Or to your point, is it mostly because, oh, that's the feed, that's in that area and or uh, mating strategy, like this is where the does are, are at or, or whatever. Um, is, do you have a, do you have a, like an, uh, uh, an educated guess on that maybe or no? I think it's more the second part with a little bit of the first part in there, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a minute. Um, but I think most of it's the second, the second part where they, they initially wanted to be there because the feed is so good because the, the um, – predator detection is a lot better. Maybe maybe the thermals or the wind is blown in a direction that gives them the best opportunity to detect predators before they get Interesting, predated yeah. on. Um, that being said, so I'm the, de- the department's net gunner, uh, and I have seen deer that I've caught before, and they come, they come uh, you know, I catch them, collar them, release them, and then later that week or next year or whatever, you know, if they've been caught all the rest of the herd that hasn't been caught before 
they'll they will flee and the animals that i have caught they'll be like i've played this game i'm just gonna get under this bush here and just wait it out and then it's gonna leave you know and yeah. so so i think there is a little bit of learned ability there mm. but um but i think i think most of it is that that first part that they were there for a reason gotcha uh, and to that point, again, as far as intelligence goes, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard this too. Oh, they know when it's hunting season, you know, like the, especially elk. Mm -hmm. Oh, they, you know, when it's not hunting season, you see them everywhere. And, you know, whether that's mule deer too, but I hear it more, more about elk. And uh, now that, you know, whatever that date rolls around, they know the exact day, you know, because <laughs> they're gone. And uh, do you do you think that there's any credence to that? Or is it they hear that? Because, I mean, if we go we go uh, bow, muzzleloader, rifle, I mean, they're obviously, they're hearing trucks, maybe they're hearing, you know, and then, then they start hearing rifles. And mm -hmm. But people say that, you know, it's, when it's hunting season, they just notice that they're gone. Is it that's just kind of fairy tale in the way you feel? In my opinion, um, I don't. I don't think they know. There's no way. Yeah, how can know. they know? Right. Yeah. What they what I do believe is they sense the increased presence on the landscape, um, and it's a different presence than like uh, say you go hunt in the Hamas all summer long. Um, have Have you been in the Hamas in the summer? I haven't. I haven't. It's like a, It's like the city of Albuquerque moves into the mountains for the summer. Wow. Everybody's up there recreating, riding their four wheelers everywhere, have their big RVs and stuff. And you know, like it's a good time. And that's what uh, national forest is about. Partly mm -hmm. um, is, is folks enjoying it. Uh, and so all summer long ripping up and down the forest roads on their razors and four wheelers and stuff. And so that animals are used to that all summer. But then when hunting season comes, there's those, humans those two-legged predators are no longer just on the forest roads they're actually coming off the forest roads and so uh, the animals sense that okay well the pressure was here all summer and it stayed here and now all of a sudden i'm getting bumped a half mile away from the forest road so i need to go deeper mm -hmm. so it, it's just where they're they, they sense where they're disturbed they sense, yeah. yeah yeah and I they go you. away from where they're disturbed repeatedly understand understand there interesting yeah because you always wonder like uh you see you see them do things and you're like wow they they really are smart you know mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's interesting um uh you have some background in um predator prey uh stuff that you were talking about before um as far as not just 5b or whatever but We'll start with that question as far as um, like bear and, and, and mountain lion in that unit. Are there a lot of them? And the second part of the question is, do you, um, what are your thoughts on the management of, of predators versus prey in this state? Is it, I mean, I don't know if you can really answer it, you know, uh, because, you know, we're at your job right now and, you know, I want you to be honest, but and, and at the third part, I'll keep going <laughs> just because it's on my mind. You know Washington State, and you know that, uh, I don't know if you know this, but they pulled spring bear uh, this year. Mm -hmm. um, is there, are there any thoughts to do that here? Or like, uh, are the management strategies that you saw in Washington similar to here versus prey uh, and predator as well? So the first part of that, sorry, that's like, you know, you know, bear and lion in 5B. <laughs> yeah, there are bears and lions in 5B. Um, <clears throat> bears, they don't really predate on the adults 
very much, maybe a sick adult. Uh, mostly they're in, they're a neonate predator for the most part, and then a scavenger, scavenger and uh, forager. Um, so it's not really a big issue in the fall uh, or on adult deer when it comes to bears. Lions are opportunistic, and they will eat adults, they'll eat fawns, and they'll eat them throughout the year at about a consistent level throughout the year. So they are there, yeah, and there's a decent amount, not enough to negatively impact the population, at least at our predator management levels, you know, because we do harvest bears and lions in there, mm-hmm. um, or our constituents do, our hunters do. Um, do you know how many, sorry not to interrupt you there, but just while it's on my mind, do you know how many bear versus lion, like, they will kill, like, whether it's per, you know, per bear per lion per month or year um i don't i'm not the deer i mean i am the deer biologist i'm not the bear or lion gotcha biologist so i don't know those numbers off the top of my head i do know that it it varies uh by area and by alternate prey base um and so you know a lion will just as quickly kill a deer as it would an elk in most instances it's just what what it gets the opportunity for um, and I don't know, like the number you'll hear people throw numbers out. Oh, a lion will eat one elk a year or one elk a week or one deer a week. And mm-hmm. you multiply yeah. that out 52 a year. And then there's, they'll give you some astronomical numbers. There's 86 lions in this unit. So then multiply that by 52 deer per week. That's, you know, and all of a sudden the number seems like yeah, unbelievable in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but again, they're opportunistic, and if an if a lion has a chance to kill two deer in a week, I'm sure it would. Mm. Uh, but if I don't think they're that they're that prolific, I think um, or that good of they're phenomenal hunters. But I don't think they kill two per week or anything like that. I think it's just like when the opportunity arises. Mm-hmm. Um, See, so yeah, I don't have those numbers, and as far as like bear predation on the neonates or the you know the this year's calves or fawns. I th- again think that's based on alternate prey sources as well. What's sure. the, you know, how quickly can they find other food? And if they're sniffing along for an ant mound and they come across a fawn, they'll snatch it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, coyotes will eat coyotes are the same way. They're they're coursing predators that'll look for fawns and calves and will eat them. So I, again, I don't have numbers. Sure. sure. Um. Would you say one or, or the other is more detrimental to to deer survival, like versus bear, a lion versus a bear in there? No, because they they eat them at different stages, and that I goes see. back to the the compensatory versus additive mortality. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we fly our deer surveys to look at to make sure numbers are sustainable, and or we want them to be growing. Um, and they, the bear folks and lion folks, they set their harvest numbers to maintain a healthy population on the landscape that's not going to overpredate on those prey species. I see. So um, a bear might eat a calf or fawn in the spring that would have died two months later because of drought, and that's sure. compensatory mortality. Um, Got it. So, yeah, and it, it just it kind of depends on two it seems like again i'm not the person to be doing this talking real in depth about this but um 
they have done studies on on deer survival and stuff and it seems like bears eat them like earlier in the spring and then and and lions will eat the fawns earlier in the spring but then once like the birthing pulse comes they aren't able to eat i mean they eat what they can right but they're not the main source of mortality always i guess i don't know gotcha uh, does that make sense no no it does it does yeah i um would you say that um the, the numbers that are being harvested, you know, uh, throughout the state for bear and cougar are adequate. Like you, or do you feel, or can you even comment on that? Like, do you, can you, would you say that more predators need to be harvested, or we're right about where we need to be? Um, or and then again, uh, the comment on Washington that you know them nixing the the spring bear and your feelings on that. Yeah. Uh... I don't know whether it's from the deer perspective, it seems pretty appropriate. There are places where predation's higher. There are places where it's lower in the state uh, or from the bear and cougar perspective uh, or from the deer perspective about bear and cougar predation. Mm -hmm. It seems fine from my end. There are places where it's higher, where it's lower. Um, We are doing as a department, a big study right now to look at, to reassess population sizes on bears and cougars throughout the state. Um, those results should be coming out fairly soon. We're in the middle of our regulation cycle or season setting cycle for bears and cougars right now. Mm. Uh, and that rule is going to be voted on by the commission here in a couple months. I don't know the exact date. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what our, our uh, carnivore guy is, Nick. I don't know what Nick's numbers are i haven't talked to him about it or anything like that so i can't i can't comment yeah that's a that's the that's off the fly question it's probably not not a fair question i'd love to talk to him about that that'd be great sure yeah yeah and i just don't have the numbers right and so anything i say um is just a wild guess yeah yeah (laughs) no totally and so it's not fair for me or for him, for me to... Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're right. Unfair, that kind of an unfair question, but no, what, okay. any thoughts on uh, spring bear for Washington? No, um, we don't have... We have spring bear hunting in New Mexico in one place. Um, you know, I know that they have different biological and political pressures in Washington than what we have here. Yeah. And so I know that whatever those pressures and influences were both biologically and politically weighed into that decision to pass that law. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I don't have an outsider's perspective on it or opinion on it. I I just know that they would have done, uh, their due process to make sure that it's biologically appropriate and politically appropriate and feasible yeah those two things kind of you they it's a tough balance there huh mm-hmm. especially depending on the state the region that you're in yeah your commission here that votes on stuff like that are they is it a commission of uh, biologists or is it uh, just a mixture of the, the general public or yeah it's a mixture of, of general public we we have a, a commission of seven members they're appointed by the governor in New Mexico. Um, and the governor, you know, tries to get commissioners from, from different sectors and segments of, of our, um, citizen or constituent base. Um, sometimes there is former, our former department employees on the commission. Uh, 
right now I'm trying to think. I don't think there are at the moment. Um, but, you know, it seems like there's uh, tries to be a representative from, from different sectors, whether it's cattle growers, whether it's landowners associations, um, maybe energy development, things like that. And mm-hmm. so, again, um, uh, governor appointed. I see. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah there's a, the political aspect of, like, making decisions, you know, I – I sometimes just from uh, watching what happened in Washington, and I'm not a bear hunter per se. I'd love I'd love to to partake in that one day when you know when I get some experience, more experience. But I was planning on spring bear there this year. I was like, oh, this that seems cool. I want to put in for that. And then that happened, and then I started to again listen to podcasts and and uh, read a little bit, but. The, the podcasts I listen to are more slanted, of course, they're hunters, you know, so it's like the hunter's upset about that. And then you're trying to figure out yourself like, hey, is, are they right? And then from what I'm hearing from the hunters is a decision is made mostly by uh, a commission based uh, of people who either don't hunt and or aren't biologists. So it's set, the, the numbers are set by the biologist. And then the commission makes a decision based on what the biologists have said and then what the public says. Is that, is that about correct? Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be, uh, uh, I think for most states, that's pretty well how it is. We, we set our recommendations and, um, and then if, if our constituent base is asking for something different mm-hmm. uh, than what we've set, as long as it's not going to negatively impact the population, um, a lot of times we'll go with, or the commissioner, whomever, will go with what our constituent base wants. I see. So we do our initial biological assessment first. Can it sustain harvest? If so, how much? And and what type, what level, what season, you know, of harvest might it might the population sustain? And then we make our recommendation, and, and then from there it goes out for public comment. The commissions hear the public comments and hear the desires. And then it's it's a discussion of okay, is the desires of the constituents still biologically sustainable and feasible? You know, may have to go reanalyze some numbers or things like that from the biologist perspective. Um, mm. But then we we ultimately get to a point that's uh, hopefully accepted by our constituent base and liked by our constituent base. At, after that, a little bit of back and forth and discussion. So I see, yeah, tough tough one. From the hunter's point of view, you would almost like it to be, hey, 100% biology based, you know. But at the same time, if it was, if the decision was the other way, then you'd be like, hey, what about us? You know, like, uh, yeah, why, why can't our voice be heard? So well, it's different. That and um, as united as hunters try to be, there's a lot of division in the hunting community. Um, why is that? You know, everybody has their opinions. Everybody, everybody has their opinions or desires what they want. Like somebody might be a diehard trad bow hunter and they might want to see more traditional bow hunting opportunities. And somebody might be, uh, I I shoot compound, you know, I just like to bow hunt. And so I might not want to see hunts set aside for traditional bow hunters, or you have your restricted muzzleloaders, you know, everybody has their, their, their niche, their hobbies, their, their pet pet things they want to do, pet hobbies, pet units, whatever yeah. uh, hunters hunters do. And so it's not that hunters are against each other. It's that um, you tend to vote for, lobby for whatever 
is nearest and dearest to you. Mm -hmm. And so if I was a traditional bow hunter, I would lobby harder for traditional bow hunting. And so I think that's where the division comes from and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, um, and that was the point of earlier. I was, uh, I don't know if I voiced this, but I was thinking about it. Uh, um, the advocacy for hunting in general, whether it's not hunters or hunters and the more people that we have involved in the sport, the more, you know, support we're just going to have and be able to be out there and hunting and have like legitimate good management and that. Um, with that being said, is there a way you being a hunter, you know, passionate hunter as well, is there a uh, association in New Mexico where a healthy association anyway, that, you know, has a good population of hunters and that's active that has those kinds of things in mind as far as bringing hunters together, whether they're, like you said, trad bow or, or compound bow or muzzleloader or rifle or whatever your, 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 your pick is to hunt. Um, is there like an association that kind of brings those people together and just advocacy and they advocate just on hunting in general and trying to get those numbers and those laws and those things, uh, in a, in a healthy, um, you know, way for hunters? Yeah, I'm sure there are. Um, or do you know of any, I mean, like anything that's active in the, in the state? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do know of a few, I don't know. I don't know what I'm allowed, like what groups I'm allowed to say. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. I, I just don't know what they'll say. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. 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 So, I don't know any. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know the Rocky mountain elk. I mean, I know they're big just throughout the States, but I just wasn't sure about New Mexico in general and kind of like what, uh, what's big and what, uh, you know, if anybody, cause I've never heard of like, uh, uh I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never heard of like a, like a nationwide hunting association that advocates to, to bring hunters together to, to advocate for laws for hunters and, and, and good management. There are, I mean, there are a few nationwide, um, yeah, I'll tell you off air. I guess, okay, sure, sure. I okay. just don't know. I don't know what I'm allowed to. No, say understand. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. That's just lack of myself knowing. I've no. I know that there's a lot of like when you listen to podcasts. This is sponsored by Rocky Mountain Elk. Mm-hmm. This and this and this and this. And, but I just don't know how active they are in 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 their roles. And that's that's just my uh, shortcoming. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but yeah um. Yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to ask you something we were just talking about. Um, oh, uh, we're talking, we're of course talking about mule deer and stuff. Is there, are there any other deer species in there? In unit 5B? Five, no. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. There's not. We have the Rocky Mountain mule deer um, in 5B. Statewide, we have two different species, four different. Subspecies are not subspecies. It's more like a type because um, they're, they're they're not separate subspecies. But we have statewide. We have Rocky Mountain mule deer, which is kind of thought of as north of I forty, and we have desert mule deer, which is thought of as south of I forty for the most part. Mm-hmm. There are it's a gradient. There are some interbreeding areas in there where there's not a hard line between a desert subspecies quote unquote in a in a rocky mountain subspecies quote unquote Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean you can imagine the deserts live more in arid desert environments the rockies live 
yeah. uh, more in the mountainous areas. Sure. And then we have white-tailed deer in New Mexico. We have a cow's white-tail subspecies, which is in the southwest part of the state, down in like the Boot Heel and all the way up into the Gila. Mm-hmm. And then we have our eastern or Texas whitetails, which are on the eastern part of the state, and they mostly live along like river bottoms and drainages and there are some like around Cloudcroft and Rudoso and things like that in the Sacramento Mountains, but a lot they're more closely tied to drainages. So I see. Yeah. Well, uh, those cows, deer, with some people call them coos. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's uh, a correct. I'm gonna go with the deer biologist that says they're cows. Uh, do those? Uh, it's a silly question, but do those interbreed with mule deer or or whitetails? No. No, they won't. Okay. Um, I'm sure if there were white tail, like eastern white tails in close proximity to those cows, I bet you could get some some interbreeding. Uh, they won't. Well, I haven't seen it. They might. I kind of doubt it, though, just because of size difference and um, difference in timing of breeding. I don't think there'd be any interbreeding between desert muleys and cows whitetails mm-hmm. there is some hybridization with eastern whitetails and rocky mountain mule, mule deer probably desert mule deer too um their time of timing and breeding is a lot closer uh and what, then not to interrupt but what is that what is the rut for the different species like the rut for uh mule deer would start when mule deer it depends on what part of the state you're in uh the northern part of the state it's generally the end of november time period is when the the rut's really in full swing southern part of the state it's more prolonged breeding season um why is that so it's it's more prolonged because you think about when the summer monsoonal rains come it may come in June, it may come in August, right? And so that those segments of the population have evolved over the years uh, to have a more prolonged breeding season. So that way, some fawns from that population are going to be born in a time in which they can take advantage of those summer monsoonal rains. Because monsoonal rains are important for fawn survival and fawn growth. Mm-hmm. And so the deer that breed and rot earlier, or the does that come in earlier, they might drop earlier and one you know, next year we might have early rains and so that's real good for their fawns and not as good for the fawns that are born later. The year after we might have late rains and so those early breeders, their fawns don't survive, but the later ones do. And so it's, you know, month, yeah. month, even sometimes month and a half long breeding season. Interesting. Okay. It's not as intense, you know, yeah. of a rut as say the northern part of the state. Um, but but that's a strategy that's um, adapted over time to that way their population can persist in the face of environmental variability. Gotcha. Um, so staying on the rut for a second, I, the rut like just excites me. I mean, just like it would any buck. <laughs> uh, but uh, in Hawaii, when the rut's on, it's usually in the summer months, and you can hear the bucks roaring. They do like a roar. Uh, not like the, the roar you'd hear with the stags or anything, but mm-hmm. like a smaller roar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I not even gonna embarrass myself by trying to do it, <laughs> but they do this roar. Do and there's there's fighting. I mean, the, we we rattle out there. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Is strategy for mule deer and during that rut? How how? I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, peak rut. What is it like? Is it are they really cracking 
And are they really like, are they making a lot of noise? Um, they will fight for sure. Uh, and they do, they do hate each other at that time. They only get breed once a year. And so they're, yeah. they're fighting for those breeding rights. Um, it doesn't seem, it seems like mule deer have a less intense rut than whitetails do. Mm. Um, I'm sure there is some small vocalizations, but I don't think it's the same as like the grunt for a whitetail, you know, whitetails will grunt and, uh, they, they seem to have more intense fights and things like that. But, um, the Northern populations, like the Rocky mountain populations of the mule deer, uh, because it is a shorter breeding window, it does seem more intense. Um, they will chase each other off and those sorts of things, but it's not, it, again, it doesn't seem as heated as say like what you're describing. It's not as, it doesn't seem as heated as what you see when elk rut and those sorts of things. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's not, they're not like creating a racket. They're definitely more visible. They definitely chase each other off. Um, but they seem a little more tolerant, not every individual, but mm -hmm. um, a lot of individuals seem a little more tolerant of another buck intermingling in their harem or whatever. Yeah. Will you hear a lot of the cracking, like the rattling that you, like, uh, I've seen whitetail during their rut where you can rattle them in. Mm -hmm. They'll come in and like be looking around. It, would it, is a mule deer more apt to do that or would they hear rattling or would you, would you know if they hear rattling and, and be more apt to like move off during peak rut? I think you could get them in. I've not tried it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a few folks have, and I think it had been uh, quasi successful with it, but it's not as successful of a strategy as it would be with whitetails. It, it, can, it can help and it, it can work. I think they could come in curiously and stuff, but um, again, I don't think it's quite, mm -hmm. quite as effective as it would be for whitetails. And on, on that again, with the, with the rut, <clears throat> like doe calls and tree stand hunting, those are kind of like, that's the, uh, almost like the trilogy. You got them, you call them in, you rattle them in, uh, you tree stand. And the other is if the, the, they're vocal, you know, you could, you could do like a buck call or whatever. Your thoughts on any of those kinds of things for the rut? Yeah. Um, for mule deer. For mule deer, I, I think it's more a spot and stock sort of thing oh, okay. when it comes to mule deer during the rut. Um, they they're more visible the the country in which they live is more open and so it's more conducive to spot and stock sort of hunts um uh, now they will use funnels they'll, they'll come down you know to water sources using trails and stuff like that that you can sit a tree stand and and uh get in get a shot in or whatever on them but um I think spot and stock is more effective or slipping along like we were talking earlier, you know, mm -hmm. covering some country looking and, you know, they're just on their feet more, um, you know, with some restrictions there such as like sheer cliffs and stuff like that, they can almost go about anywhere. And so they're not as restricted. They will use trails and take the e easy path, but when they're chasing, you know, they can be anywhere on the hillside or mountainside or whatever. Yeah. I've uh, watched some videos about that, the 5b unit and then uh the hickoria mm -hmm. uh, is that if i'm saying that correctly mm -hmm. that hickoria unit is just above it mm -hmm. um do you know anything because i've seen videos of that hickoria thing and it's like those there's like gigantic deer up there mm -hmm. and i don't know how they manage their deer um in that unit but 
do you see overflow? Do they come down from that unit or go up? Or like, is there interbreeding of that that class of deer that's up there? There are, yeah. They'll move on and off the Hickorya. Um, I mean, there's good populations on both the Hickorya and 5B and 5A. Like that whole area has a good amount of deer. Um, and we have some collared deer in that area and you see them move. We've we've seen them move across it, across the Hickorya, um, and those sorts of things, and and so there is, there is some flow back and forth between between the two, and you know when I say flow, it's not like necessarily right on the border. We've had collared deer, fifteen miles south of the border, move up and through, and you know up through the Hickoria into the Chama area, and those sorts of things, and so. Um, yeah, it does. It does happen for sure. Yeah. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why that they it's such a quality unit that five B unit is such a quality unit is because it's so close to the Hickoria, and and do you know anything about their their quote quality management? Yeah. Um, I think it's you know I think that whole area both Hickoria and Game and Fish we try to manage for restrictive harvest, which allows for. Um, uh, those bucks to reach a more prime age class and, and larger antler status. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they're, they're more restrictive uh, than we are. It seems like on the state side of things, um, but we all are trying to manage for in those areas, you know, quote unquote quality uh, or quote unquote trophy type type animals and that sort of thing. And so it's the same deer, same, same food for the most part same genetics uh so it's it's more on the management strategy side of things you see i when i was uh, uh speaking with um Anne marie of uh washington uh state she was uh she has some um uh i don't know how many reservations but she has a couple reservations mm-hmm. that that kind of intertwine in her in her area there do you have any in well of course throughout the state for sure um, I, I was going to ask specifically about 5B, but since you have them interspersed throughout the state, do you notice, and this is some, this is a quick story that I told her that I heard about in Washington, in the Yakima Valley, where a couple uh, Native Americans went into an area, uh, elk feeding area, and shot a couple bulls and harvested them right there in the viewing area. They had the right to do that. Do you see... Um, is is there any um, conflicts uh, or legitimate conflicts with yourself in any of the the reservations? Doesn't seem like it. No, um, you know we we dif- we have different may have different management strategies here and there, but we all uh, try try to talk about it and and have meetings and and see if um, what we do on our side is going to impact them and vice really? versa. That's yeah. Cool. And, um, it's, it, it doesn't seem like there's conflicts. Now we don't have the, uh, treaty rights hunting like Washington does here in New Mexico. Oh, okay. Um, and when it comes to the tribes in the state, they're a sovereign nation. They can set their managements how they want on, within their, uh, tribal borders. Um, and, but we do, we do try to talk and collaborate to make sure that we're approximating each other's goals um, but again, we don't have the treaty rights hunting that, that some other states do. I see. Gotcha. Interesting. I didn't know that. So that's that's a big deal uh, between the two states there. Um, 
did when you were there in uh, in Washington? Did you see any of that? Like, or or, or is there always usually like? Because she said that she has great relationships there. So, mm. I I hear it from hunters, you know, and hunters. Maybe it's because the frustration that they can't go on the reservation to hunt, or or stories that they're telling me or stories that they're hearing. Yeah. But it's it, it's disconcer- disconcerting in some ways to listen to those stories and, hey, wonder if those are really real because if the state is managing an area a certain way and then on the reservation they're, you know, doing it a, a completely different way or, you know, they're not all fenced, right? So there's always that, hey, are they killing more versus what we're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. So you just wonder about that as a hunter. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think most everybody has the best uh, intentions and the, the health of the resource in mind, mm-hmm. you know, and and so trying to do, you know, what's best for the resource. Um, it's hard to tell if hunter stories are true or not, you know. I, I don't know. In Washington, I, when I was up there, I didn't, um, I didn't have any – uh, tribes within my jurisdiction, you know, where I worked. And so I didn't have any issues that way. And, um, you know, perception may not be reality to some folks, you know, to, to, I guess it just, I guess it just really would depend. And, you know, there's always, there's going to be conflicts between hunters and, you know, if there's conflicts, like you said up there between hunters and, and tribal hunters or, you know, state hunters and tribal hunters, that's one thing, but there, there's always conflicts between hunters as well. You know, like, like we were saying earlier, different constituent bases within the hunting community conflict with each other too. Oh, yeah. these rifle hunters are getting all the tags and I can't get one that's a muzzleloader hunter, you know? Yeah. That irks me about hunters. They're just so opinionated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I should say passionate. They're just so passionate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good way yeah. to say it. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, cause you mentioned your wife, quite a bit. I mean, it sounds like you have a great relationship there. Does she hunt? She does. Um, her dad has always hunted. Um, and she would, you know, tag along with him growing up. And so she, she grew up around hunting. She didn't actually start carrying a firearm until she and I got together and she started out turkey hunting. Uh, and it wasn't until we moved to New Mexico. I mean, she would go along with me on my hunts and stuff, but it wasn't until New Mexico that she started carrying a firearm and she started out turkey hunting. Now she waterfowl hunts, um, and upland game hunts. She puts in for Oryx, but doesn't put in for anything else. I keep trying to talk her into putting in for elk just so I can go along on another elk hunt in a year. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I love elk hunting. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, but we've had a, I've been, I've been very successful the last six or seven years. And, and so we have, we've had, a a freezer full of meat yeah that's um, good. and so there's not you know she wants to go out at it to acquire meat she doesn't want to go just to be hunting i mean she likes it but, mm-hmm. but in her mind she wants to be hunting for meat and if we don't need meat you know which we haven't here mm-hmm. recently um she doesn't necessarily feel like she wants to just go out and just shoot just to be hunting you know i see why oryx why is she uh putting um, because it's She's not shot a big game animal yet. Um, she shot a couple turkeys, uh, I think five. She got her fifth one this year. She got two, um, and which was turkeys four and five for her. But uh, I think she wants to like 
test out the shooting of a big game animal with an oryx because it's an exotic species, although we manage them for healthy and sustainable populations in New Mexico. Um, it is an exotic species that we want to keep maintained within certain areas of the state and not have them expand. And so um, I think I think that's helping bridge that gap between shooting an animal and accomplishing a very direct management goal. Uh, it's too bad she hasn't drawn yet. That's exciting. I know. Yeah. That's super exciting. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to watch that. Yeah, <laughs> That's <right>. cool. <laughs> um, and you said you're, you love elk hunting. Is that like one of you, is that, would you say that that's your favorite? If you ask me in the fall, <laughs> elk hunting is my favorite. If you ask me in the spring, turkey hunting is. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's between the two. Um, because of the calling? Yeah, the interactiveness of those types of hunting. Um, the weather is usually beautiful. I I hike around a lot, a lot during those seasons. Um, but yeah, it's it's just fun. Like when you get one to answer you, and then the game's on. Right? It's the mm. it's that chess match I alluded to earlier. How can I put myself in the best position to get to get a responsible ethical shot at this animal? And it doesn't happen all the time. You know, I, I might, I might work four or five elk before I get a shot, you know, cause the wind swirls or whatever. And so it's just that it's that playing the game. It's, it's the intensity. Once you make that contact, um, with that animal, the intensity ramps up your, your senses are heightened. You're, you're second guessing every footstep that you make, you know? Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Do I do this? Do I do that? And then, when it when you make a stupid move, which I do all the time, uh, you're like, "Oh, daggone it, you idiot!" Uh, but then when you make the right move and you get get a shot, it's just it just feels it's good, you know. You you outwitted something that was that that you're in it. You know, if somebody came into your living room, right, that you live <laughs> there all the time, you would notice if something's out of place, uh -huh. right? And that's yeah. what you're doing with an elk. You're in its living room that it knows every tree seemingly in that area and so you outwit it and all of its senses were developed and evolved to help it survive and so that's that's the chess match i allude to and that's where the emotions come out because it's it's intense and and again you're second guessing everything you do every step you you make and should i call here should i not should i move forward five yards should i back up five yards and Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just fun. Has she been on an elk, like an uh, uh, archery elk hunt with you? Yeah, she's been on, let's see. Um, I've, oh, how many elk have I killed now? I think I've killed six in New Mexico. And she's been in on every one except for one of them. Um, and we've, we've developed a strategy over the last couple of years where she'll set up behind me and rake a tree uh, you know, make contact and, and she'll set up behind me and rake a tree maybe 50 yards away. And uh, it's been very successful for us getting animals to come in. And again, it doesn't work every time where I'll get busted or whatever, the window swirl. Um, but, are you yeah. calling too? Or, or are you just, you're quiet and she's raking? It depends on the situation. Sometimes I'll call, uh, cow call, bugle, whatever. To make the contact, I'm always calling. Uh, but when we're setting up and she's raking the tree, sometimes I will, sometimes I won't call. Mm -hmm. Um this last year, she raked in a nice five by six for me. We we got it to bugle from the bed, from its bed, about twelve o'clock. Wow! And uh, slipped in and found a nice open spot for me to set up and said, "Hey, get behind me and you know start raking a tree." And I said, "When I cow call, 
you start raking you oh, know, for cool. a minute or two and then wait. And I said, if I call, call again, then start raking again. And so to your point, ask a question about if I, call, if I'm calling when I got set up, I called. So he knew I was there. He was probably 150 yards away. Um, so I bugled him first, made contact. Then we slipped in real close and I cow called to, to have Aaron start raking the tree. And then she did it for about a minute. And I thought, you know, I kind of want a little bit more raking. And so I cow called two more times and she started raking again. And then within 15 seconds of her starting to rake the second time, that bull was was in my shot shooting lane. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've we've been... We've had good success working it like that. Right. That's awesome. So for, again, a new hunter, somebody who doesn't know anything about like calling and stuff like that, she's raking, meaning that there's a bull back there like raking his antlers. And then you're cow calling because you're telling, you're trying to tell that other bull that, and I hate to be so elementary about this, but I really want people to understand, uh, you're, you're telling that other bull, and again, you correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are telling that bull, hey, there's a bull over here. He's raking and he's got cows. And then you're cow calling to let him know, yeah, there's cows and there's a bull here. So um, am, I, am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of how I, I mean, we have to develop stories, right? We have to like right. make sense of what we're seeing right. in the woods. And and that's the stories that I develop is, <clears throat> or that I think about as well as uh, two things. One, there's a bull displaying in my bedding area. I'm trying to make that bull that's bedded annoyed that there's another bull displaying where it's supposed to be my spot. You know, this, I'm here, this is my spot. You shouldn't be displaying here. And so that's the intent of the raking. The cow calling was to say, Hey, there's something up here that this thing's displaying for. Mm. I want to go get this cow and I want to run this other guy off or assess if I can run this other guy off. Mm. And so, so yeah, that's exactly it is. Um, they're, they're territorial, right? right. And, and they don't like, you know, he has, he bugled at me initially cause he's like, Hey, this is my spot. I'm here. You go away. That's so, the story I told myself. So this, the way you started the story was by the raking first. Yeah. Let me start up. First contact was I bugled. Like I was hiking around okay. bugling Got it. and I bugled and he answered me from his bed, probably a couple hundred yards away. Okay. And so when I bugled, he answered me. That was him saying, Hey, this is my spot. I'm here. You know, like <laughs> if you stay there, we're cool. But if you come closer, we're going to have problems is the way that the story <laughs> I developed in my head. So then me and my wife went closer and then started raking and started displaying, you know, raking on a tree all of a sudden this this new bull that I just told to stay away not only got closer, but now he's raking a tree and displaying in my area. This is what this other bull I think is thinking. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And then when I hit the cow call, it's like, man, now that guy not only did he get closer and disrespect me that way, started displaying in my area, plus he has a cow in my area. I'm going to go up there and find out what's what and nice. get him out of there. Nice. That's the story I told myself. It was a good story. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. It, you obviously, he obviously, uh, he had the same story in mind because <laughs> yeah. he came out. Uh, on, on the bugling part of it, like just for people who don't know, the bugling is like the bull uh, displaying, right? Like the bull uh, mm-hmm. calling. Uh, I just started bugling myself and I use uh, a Phelps game call one that I'm having a lot of success with, at least having them answer me. And 
the reeds that go into your mouth, I have a gag reflex. I don't use the reeds. I'm always gagging, whatever. I tried it. I don't know how many times. So I need that, you know, (laughs) I I don't know. I call it like the baby mouth call. Like, you you, you know, you just can't use the reeds. So just use this, you baby. You know, so, um, but I'm having success with it. What I've noticed or what I've heard is that, you know, there's all different types of like uh, levels of uh, bugling and 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 um, and success with that. I know one way to do it. I can't do any chuckles or anything like that. And I've had them answer me. Now to that story, that be- that um, bull sitting in his bed when he hears that bugle, will he assess or do you know this? Will he assess? Hey, that that. A bull is bigger than me, so uh, I think I'm gonna sit here, you know. But just by the way you bugle, and but would you can you? I mean, I'm sure that there's instances where you can scare him off. Um, is that is that about right? Is that true or no? Or is, is it like, hey, I don't care, he's in my area, or is that like, hey, it depends on if it's a smaller bull, satellite bull, like uh, herd bull, that kind of thing? Yeah, there, there are probably folks like um like you mentioned you know the 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 call makers phelps or whatever i'm sure he can make that assessment he's heard a lot more than i have or they have heard Mm -hmm. a lot more than i have um so they might have a better idea of what that animal is thinking i don't know that i don't know that they're I don't know if they can tell or not on initial contact whether it's a big bull or not. I mean, I've seen big bulls bugle be real squealy, a real bad bugle. You know, I've seen smaller bulls sound like a big one. And so mm. maybe the animals can. Um, I think they can sense the emotion behind the bugle to know whether it's just a lazy, hey, I'm here type bugle or whether it's a, hey, I'm, I'm – I'm here. I got cows. Everybody else stay away. Type bugle. You got know. It, yeah. I, I think they can. I think the elk can. Elk can tell that between each other. When I'm bugling, I'm not good enough to to make those distinctions. I can do a couple different tones. I'm not great at chuckling, um, but I I can do a couple different things to kind of help put that emotion into it. Mm-hmm. But it's. I think. I think what's been so successful for me is that I get so close to the animal that it can't it doesn't have a choice but to come check it out because whether it's an aggressive bugle or not i'm close enough to it to where it's like i gotta see what this is Mm. and it's nothing for them to cover 100 150 yards um and sometimes i'll even try to get closer so i think that's why i've been successful same with turkeys Mm. um is is i've i've called in and killed a lot of turkeys um and most of them are because I've made it so easy for the animal to come look at me. It's not that I'm a great caller. It's that I'm close enough that they can, I get tight enough before I start calling that they're like, yeah, I'm going to go check us out. Whether they're coming in to try to kick my butt or whatever. Like that, I think that's why I've been successful in those both species of calling. Gotcha. And uh, do you know anything about uh, like deer calling the grunts or, cause I only have, I'll, all I know about the grunts is like just that one little grunt tube mm-hmm. and like that, you know, the, there's that slide, that little variation. Is it yeah. basically the same thing as bugling? Kind of. I mean, there's different types of grunts, tending grunts and display type grunts, aggressive type grunts. Um, I've grunted in a lot of animals, a lot of whitetails back in Ohio and West Virginia 
I would say my success with that had been 50, 50, um, probably even less than that. I have had a lot, I've had a lot of success with it and I've had a lot of animals just ignore me. And so I don't know what the reason would be with that, why they're, why they'd ignore me or they're just not in the mood, whether I wasn't close enough, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a grunt that I did. I heard a live buck do it one time and I mimicked it. And I had a pretty decent success with that, like cadence of grunts, um, getting some bucks to come up and check me out. But yeah, I wasn't the greatest at it at more my my strategy whitetail hunting or grunting was more just like sit and wait and if i saw one out there that wasn't coming anyway i'd try to grunt yeah so. yeah yeah <laughs> sometimes you just don't know yeah. you don't know what the heck they're thinking like yeah. they'll come in or not come in you scare them away like mm-hmm. yeah it's different especially for me and deer uh so you don't rifle hunt at all i do i rifle hunt for deer um but i don't generally put in for rifle elk hunts anymore um i did in colorado and Utah I, I rifle hunted there but I, I just like bow hunting better mm-hmm. um so yeah I'll rifle hunt for deer what's your caliber what do you normally use I use a 30-06 oh, I've, I've had it since 2009 um I can kill any animal in North America with it it's not the farthest shooting the flattest shooting anything like that but uh that gun and I have a good relationship with each other I know what it's going to do and yeah. uh I try not to surprise it if I can't help it. And it's been very effective for me. I've killed one elk, uh, I don't know, three oryx. I don't know how many deer with it, 10 or so deer with it and stuff like that. And it's just been effective. I don't, I don't change anything from year to year. I go out and make sure it's still hitting where I want. I'm still grouping. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, we found a, a good, a good mix of, uh, ammo and rifle that work well and, and I like it. Can you say what that is? It's a Thompson Center Venture. Oh, okay. So Thompson Center, I don't even know if they still make rifles anymore. I bet they do. But they started out as a muzzleloader company. Mm-hmm. And I got this gun back in 2009, um, like I said. And uh, again, it's not the fanciest or, or whatever, but it's been effective for me. It shoots better than I can shoot. There's guns that shoot way better than it does now. Um, at the time, it was really, really one of the uh, I don't want to say better shooting guns on the market, but you know, affordable, real good shooting gun, but I, it shoots better than I do already. And so I've never felt the need to upgrade Yeah, because it's right with you. Yeah. I'm at my, I'm at my max limit. Now, if I shot every day, I'd obviously get better, but I don't. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, I found something that works and what, what ammo? Um, so I was using the, um, Hornady GMXs. Mm-hmm. And they work really well. One, what grain is that? Not one, oh, one sixty fives. Um, it's those they're copper bullets, and they shot really well with me. I wasn't able to find them the last couple years, so I had to go back to the Remington Core Locks, um, okay. which is why I started out at it with it. Um, and that shoots; they both shoot real well. Now, I also, I've never killed an animal greater than 125 yards oh, okay i don't shoot real far either like the way that i hunt it allows me to get close enough to them i just use the terrain and stuff yeah i would be comfortable taking a shot out to 200 somebody who shoots a lot would be able to shoot that gun a lot further but um i don't shoot a lot i, I know that i can kill 100 yards 150 yards 
and and I'm happy with that. And I like to get close anyway, so I just don't shoot far. Yeah, well, thirty out six, you don't hear too much. I mean, I mean that used to be everything. Mm -hmm. Would you, you know, I sh I shoot a thirty out six. It's like back in the day, I guess. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's an older older uh, caliber, but like you know, people still use it. And like you said, it could kill anything mm -hmm. pretty much. Do you bear hunt? No, I, I want to. Um, Me too, man. I want to bear hunt. Yeah, I might this year. I never had a desire to because I didn't have a desire to eat them. But um, I've seen some good recipes and stuff like that here in the last couple years that I think, you know, I'd, I'd really like to try that. Yeah. I might try it this year. I don't know because I don't have an elk tag this year. And I usually don't bear hunt because I'd rather elk hunt. And a lot of times they're same season. I don't want put my tag in, on a bear and have to deal with that when I'm chasing an elk, you know? Yeah, totally. So since I don't have an elk tag this year, I may try it, but again, it goes back to, I have a lot of meat in the freezer, so I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure if I will or not yet. What about lion? Um, have you ever hunted lion? And, and um, I've thought about it recently too, hunting mm -hmm. lion, just because one, I, I know it's weird, but I've heard that the meat's good. Mm -hmm. Like some, so many people have told me that that meat's good. I never even thought about eating a mountain lion. It's crazy. Yeah. But I've heard that it's good. And then the other part of that is, is that, you know, you help the, uh, you know, you help the deer population. You know, mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've never hunted them. I, I have a kind of desire to, I've heard they taste good as well. If I hunted them, I don't, no, I'd like to I'd like to go with somebody who's running dogs, yeah, chasing lions, but I don't necessarily want to go shoot a lion that was run by dogs. What I think I'd like to do is spot and stalk or or find some snow and just track it myself. Mm -hmm. um, Why is that? Why wouldn't you shoot one that's getting run by dogs? It's I don't have unfair. Anything, I don't no, I don't think it's unfair. I don't yeah. have anything against it. It's just it's just not quite my cup of tea. I've never been there. Now maybe if I was there, I might, you know, I might decide I'd want to shoot one like that, but um, it's just, it's just not something I've been around a lot. I'd like to go and see it yeah. and see the process, but, um, I think I would find more enjoyment personally out of spotting and stalking or tracking one on my own without yeah. the use of dogs. Again, I'm not condemning anybody who uses no. them. No, I totally just... see that now that you say that, cause I'm picturing the lion in the tree and all the dogs around and like, oh my gosh, the lion's scared. Like, am I going to shoot that lion? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's not, it doesn't seem like the – but that that's the hunt too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those houndsmen, they put in a lot of work to get their dogs working like that. Again, I don't think it's an unfair way to hunt. It's just, you know, traditional versus compound bow. You exactly. Know, there, you there you go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, you, you're – the bird hunting, do you guys use dogs? No. You don't? Oh, interesting. No, I'll just kick brush. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, well, it's oh. not super effective, but we're out hiking around. <laughs> well, this this is coming from the grouse guy, you know. Like, yeah. yeah, I'll take it. I'll take that from you. <laughs> um, this uh, last question, you know, I, I was hoping that you had dogs because this was one one I wanted to ask you because I've been looking at dogs myself recently. Like I don't have any, but I was looking at uh, possibly getting like a pointer. Um, but I'm not a bird hunter. I wanted to, uh, use them to maybe like either shed hunt or track mm -hmm. for me. Cause I'm a terrible tracker when it comes to blood, like, a, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, I've gotten a lot better and I don't injure game as much, you know, mm -hmm. but it happens. Yeah. And so, um, I hate scouting around in, in the forest looking for blood drops and like where, and I'm terrible at tracking. I hate to say that too, but 
like knowing which way things are going and you know I, I get a lot I mean I can lose myself in there easily so I wanted to get a dog to do that deer hunting uh with dogs is illegal right mm-hmm. uh, in New Mexico in New Mexico gotcha um but you can shed hunt with them and can you can you use them to track or no you on a, like let's say I'm in mule deer country not not this year of course because i want to get i want to build up my dogs and train them and stuff but if i had my dog with me uh mule deer hunting in 5b1 year or whatever or whatever unit could i say hey we shot we already shot him we're just trying to find him yeah um we did just look at that the last couple years and i'm i'm here looking at our rule book um, trying to find the exact language for that because I don't know. Being not a game warden and not having dogs, it's not something I've had to look closely at. No, that's okay. I just was wondering if you knew off the top. I can look it up, but yeah, look it up. I know there's a use of dogs clause in here. Um, I'll see if. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Okay, you you can use them for lions though, right? Yes, you can. Yeah, and bears. And and bears, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Can can you bait bears here? Do you know? No, no, you can't bait can't, bears. Yeah, gotcha. Can you bait any? Can, you can you can't bait um, lions. That wouldn't. You can't bait a lion, can you? I don't know if that would work. Because um, they're more. They like to to hunt. Yeah, they like to get their own. You know, fresh. Prey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, you can't bait. You can't hunt over bait for any species in New Mexico. Um, so yeah, that's illegal to hunt over bait for for any species. Mm-hmm. People do feed deer in towns and stuff like that. That's not illegal. It's highly discouraged, but it's not illegal. I see. I see. So leaving feed out is probably probably discouraged. I would say. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Well, man, I have. I don't know how long we've been doing this, but I have like uh, a ton of more questions and like. But I'd love to do this again. I don't want just don't want to keep you too long. I just. Com- really appreciate you doing this sure and like just giving me your background on, and on hunting and trying to help you know people out there especially myself and in, in getting better at at uh at the sport mm-hmm. um is there anything else that you'd want to tell again i'd love to do this again so you could we could we could uh we could do this again and you can have a more prepared uh answer but is there anything that you'd want to tell anyone out there that's listening um, as the deer biologist for New Mexico? Yeah, there, there's two things. Uh, one, um, there's a bunch of things. One, <laughs> New Mexico is a great place to deer hunt. We don't have the most deer, you know, Colorado and Utah, Montana, Wyoming, they have a lot more deer than we do here because of habitat and weather patterns and stuff like that. Um, but it is still a great, still a great place to hunt deer. If you get a tag in New Mexico, um, I always tell people, even if you get a half mile off the road, I prefer to get deeper just because I like to hike like we were talking, but even a half mile off the road, you'll start seeing a lot more game than if you just drove up and down the roads. Now, people kill animals every year driving up and down the roads and and getting out of their truck and stepping off the road and shooting them, but um, I don't like that type of hunting, but also, as we were talking earlier, the animals get pushed away from the road, so just getting off the road a little bit jumping over that ridge that you're looking at instead of looking at the front of it, go to the backside. You'll get into a lot more game than you do. The last thing that I I do want to say is because we're talking newbies getting into the hunting sport. Um, One thing I tell everybody is it's, 
talking to adult onset hunters, uh, teenage onset hunters, whatever folks, those, those people who are wanting to get into the game, but, but can't, but haven't had the opportunity yet. They always think there's, they, they feel like there's a barrier to entry. They think that hunters have some secret knowledge, uh, that, that they haven't, that this new person hasn't acquired yet. What I want folks to realize is we're all out there just winging it. We're all out there just doing the best we can, right? We're, yeah. we're making, we're developing stories in our head, like we said, making sense of the sign that we see and doing the best we can to put ourselves in position for a successful day. There's things you'll learn along the way as you get into it, like you've experienced and stuff that, that'll help make you more successful and more, inc- more prone to bringing an animal home on a hunt. Um, but it's not like, even though I've been doing it since, you know, eight or 10 years old, it's not like I have some secret thing, knowledge, whatever that, that somebody else doesn't have or can't acquire. It's just that I've, I've spent more time reading the sign and, and developing their stories and found something that works for me. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it's not like we all have some secret know-how. We're all just winging it. We're all just doing the best we can. And so that, yeah, that's, that's, that's something I, I kind of want to say. And as you get into it, you'll find something that works for you. You'll have success on this one thing and you'll go back and you'll, you'll try to have, you'll find that similar situation or condition and see if you have success with it again. Maybe you do again, maybe you don't, but then you have success a different way. And so then you start putting these patterns together that, oh, when I do this or when I go here and I see this, I see a lot more animals than when I go here and I go see this. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it's you just never know. That's why it's a, mm-hmm. that's why it's such a uh, interesting and like addictive sport mm-hmm. or culture. Yeah. Um, and to your point, uh, this is something we talked about before we turned on the mic and stuff. But you you were describing me. You know, I was like when I first started hunting, I or when I wanted to get into it. I thought that there was a barrier to entry. I thought that there was like a, you know, a, a rite of passage that, hey, I need to know certain things before I even get out there. And in a way, safety-wise, you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, shooting yourself or shooting someone else or getting lost and all that other kind of stuff. There's real dangers out there of getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big thing was is like, how do you do this? You know, how do, how I'm brand new what do I just get a gun, look at the regs and go out there? Like, I mean, there's got to be more than that. So that's what this is for. It's more of like, and that's why I backed up on your raking. I understood most of what you were saying. And I also, I I was honestly hoping that you would correct me in some way and say, no, 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 actually this is how it is. And so I could learn something too. Mm -hmm. But that's what this is for is for like somebody who doesn't know to, so they can learn. And, um, because man, I'm addicted. I just got addicted to it. Like it's, it, I've heard Joe Rogan talk about this, and it's it resonated with me. He described it as a room in your house that you didn't open before, and you open it up, and like there's all this stuff in here that I, I think is so amazing, and it, it's a primal thing mm-hmm. inside of us. Like my, you, you grew up, you you, you were saying you're carrying a weapon at ten or twelve or whatever. I wasn't, you know, I I'm late onset, I'm an adult hunter. And, but there's a primal urge in me, my dad, my great, great granddad, or somebody back in my lineage hunted Mm -hmm. because what I'm experiencing, I can't explain, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's something that is now alive that was dormant, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And it's not something that, Hey, you want to 
try pickleball, you know, right. like it's <laughs> not like that at all. It's like this crazy thing. Mm-hmm. And so this is super helpful to me, man. And I really thank you for this because there's no other way that I could think of um, getting the knowledge, you know, other than being out there. And I don't have that many years left. Like I, I don't have my whole life to hunt like uh, some people have. So I'm trying to get the knowledge from the people. Like you said, hey, if you first got a, I got a tag in 5B, what would you do? He goes, well, first of all, I'd talk to me, you know. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm glad I'm on the right track that way. And yeah, I hope we can do this again and I can have, we can actually get into a lot of the other questions because I, I like the way this went. We just kind of meandered around some topics that were really super helpful, I hope, to new hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been been fun and good conversation and stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And if you know anybody else who wants to do it in, in the organization, I'm happy to talk to anybody, whether it's about, you know, my first, you know, contacting you is because I got the tag in 5B. And it was more about deer and you're the deer biologist. But if you can think of anybody else who would be interested in doing one that, you know, whether it's about predators or elk, I mean, I love elk hunting too. And you, you were talking about bear hunting. I'd love to talk to somebody about bear hunting because I never have. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the state of New Mexico allowing me to do this with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Awesome, man. Thank you again. Okay.